ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. This is where the big boys play, huh? This is where the big boys play. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Well, hello everyone, and you're listening to Where the Big Boys Play, uh, yet again, and I'm here with Chad. How are you doing? Doing good today, Parf. How are you doing? I'm, I'm very good. Uh, what have you been up to since last time you and I spoke? <laughs> uh, uh, a whole lot. Uh, well, yesterday I had uh, the first baby shower, Parf, mm. um, and and I can tell you that is a uh, that is an experience onto itself, my friend. Um, uh, we 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 had it at my house, so the so the prep work for the house was intense, where I was cleaning uh, pretty much nonstop the past week to get the house looking spotless. Mm. And we, we decided that uh, I was just going to stay upstairs in our media room during the shower. And <laughs> uh, and so it was me and my two dogs that sometimes make cameos on these shows. And they are very territorial. So if they hear any uh, noise, they go nuts. Well, mm. needless to say, we had about uh, three or four girls uh, that were about age five and six that came to the shower and were running around constantly upstairs, uh, kept knocking on my door, and I couldn't, I didn't know if it was my wife needing me or the girls just screwing around. Uh, so the dolls got loose. It, it was a disaster. It was one of the most stressful three hours of my life, uh, waiting on the shower to be over. <laughs> no, it, so. I, I mean, the, the shower seems like an exceptionally girly affair. Is it like a very, like a, like yeah. a, it's a woman's deal, right? Oh, yeah. So, so one thing in the U.S. that's kind of became, uh, I would say more popular is, the inner gender, either wedding shower or baby shower, uh, right? Like they call a couple shower, and it's something I've never gotten behind because yeah, I mean it's this one had cake, had some kind of games, you know, little party games to play, and and then you open up presents. So not not much for a man to me. Do you know? Uh, do you know what's really telling is that when you said the words inter gender there. Literally, the first thing that came into my mind was Sapphire, Sherry, <laughs> Dusty. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I'm I've just been watching the World Cup, basically, Chad. That's all I do is watch football. Like I said last time, um, uh, one of the things I found is that because um, I told everybody, right, I am not leaving the flat. I am not doing anything but watching football in the evenings from for this month this is what i told everyone and um yeah the annoying thing about the world cup is that other people exist so people people keep on like so my my friends came over yesterday but like they're not like so they were distracting from the from the action you know and like various people have come to see me in the evenings and whatnot despite the fact i've said and you know that they still uh, ultimately they still want to go out and things so it's like it's difficult to just be left alone. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of Murphy's Law, where uh, you know 
the typical with life where if there's something you really want to do at the house, everybody wants you to hang out, and then it, on, on a slow Saturday night when you got nothing going on, everybody else is tied up. Uh, that, that's kind of Murphy's Law with these shows, because most people know we record most of these shows on a Sunday morning, mm-hmm. and... Uh, on, on the weeks we don't record, my wife will sleep in to like, you know, 10, 11, uh, sometimes even up to noon. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we do record, you can bet your bottom dollar she's going to be up and going by like 9 a.m. <laughs> it's right, just yeah. kind of how it is. Um, but yeah, much easier to achieve, because like, it's much easier to achieve watching all the games when you're 14 than when you're 31. I'll just yeah, say that. Yeah, yeah. That I will uh, back up because the first World Cup I watched was the 2002 one in South Korea. Yeah. Uh, and that was great because I was out of school. Uh, it was the summer and I was able to stay up. And what I did was I watched uh, the first two games live and would go to bed at like 5 o'clock in the morning or something over here. <laughs> and I would tape the third game on a VHS. I was yeah. still hanging on. And, uh, and would watch that when I woke up at 11 or 12 or whatever. Anyway, the name on the marquee is wrestling. Um, yeah. And uh, we're, we're talking about Clash of the Champions uh, 15, Knoxville Knockout. Is that, is that the... Did I just uh, make that Knox, up? Knoxville, USA. <laughs> Knoxville, uh, USA, right. <laughs> kind of a play on the... Uh, they were in Knoxville, Tennessee. So a little play on the words there. It's time for the Wrestling Observer Extra. Wrestling Observer Extra. With Dave Meltzer. Only three Meltzer this week, but one of them, I'll just say at the top here, is one of my all-time favorite observers. We may linger on this for some time. Um, Any, uh, any... Uh, are we, we going to ditch the torch at this point? Or? <laughs> well, I do have torches. Uh, there was three again. Right. But, uh, but yeah, right now, I, w- I will say this is a bad time for the torch. Because when you, you messaged me last night and told me about the Great Observer, and I was a bit miffed because uh, there was literally, like, hardly nothing in the torch. Uh, I, not, I, I mean, I do – I took a little bit of a look, and – it seems like the torch kind of changes their style a little bit, starting with the the uh, next week after what we'll be talking about here. Mm. So I'm I'm optimistic because right now I'll say like, um, I mean the torch is still only six pages and at least a page and a half and sometimes two pages of that is just ring results. Right. From all the territory, so well, that seems like a, a, a an ordinate huge amount of time of uh, space 25 percent 33 percent of your whole newsletter being devoted to just ring results well well Keller probably just had to go to school or something didn't he yeah I mean, <laughs> again i don't know if he was still in college at this point but it, it it really i mean when the torches first started firing up when we looked at them in mid 90 um i really liked some of the editorials we got and they were doing some interesting torch talks and uh, just the last like 10 issues i've looked at they haven't done really any interesting torch talks uh actually in the set we did here i didn't even make a note of this but they did do a they called it a torch talk with jesse ventura Mm. but yeah but what they did was he did a radio interview and keller just transcribed the radio interview right did did, uh, called it a torch talk so it was a very bizarre 
Jesse have anything to say, or should we? While we get on to it, it, was, it was, yeah, it was fairly tame. That's why I was I was disappointed because when I opened that up and saw it on the front page, it said Torch Talk with Ventura. I was like, okay, but uh, I was disappointed in that they just used a kind of radio interview that he did and called it a Torch Talk. He didn't actually speak to Keller one on one. So uh, my first is May twenty seventh. Okay. So uh, you can go ahead, and we'll probably be in line because it's I I, I norm I do the torches by the number, but we should be in sequence. So well, syndicated ratings for the first two uh, weeks of May sweeps have been deemed to be disastrous, uh, which is not surprising at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's said that Mark Mera once KO'd Razor Ruddock when they were both amateur boxers. Um, which is uh, interesting, I guess. Although Mel- Meltzer uh, is hesitant uh, about these rumours, you know, he's he he always wants to uh, make sure that things are true, doesn't he, Meltzer? Yeah. Um, let's talk of Dick Murdoch and uh, Dick Slater coming in under hoods, um, and the Japan pay-per-view show appears to have done a 0.7 buy rate. The company was expecting a 0.5, so not bad, not bad considering. Um, um, because of, like an average show, which we'll get to later, at about uh, 1.2. Yeah, yeah. So that's not bad at all. Um, then, uh, well, speaking of radio interviews, there's an interview with Terry Funk here, conducted by the Wrestling Spotlight Radio by John R. Arezi. Um And uh, Meltzer mentions that Funk appeared in an episode of Quantum Leap as a villain wrestler. You ever seen that? I haven't. Uh, yeah, yeah, I knew about that, but I I never watched the show Quantum Leap. That was kind of before my time. Uh, yeah. Have you have, yeah, have you watched that show? Yes. Uh, I've, yeah, I watched it a lot when I was a kid. Um, yeah. It, I wasn't too into the kind of the sci-fi stuff as a kid. I uh, got more into that as my teen years. Um, so yeah, that kind of wasn't on my radar at all. Oh boy, that's all I'll say. <laughs> Recent, um, anyway, Funk has been recently injured in Japan. Um, and uh, oh, I did look up that episode of Quantum Leap, and apparently, I think uh, Sam Beckett, who is the uh, main character of Quantum Leap, uh, leaps into Terry Funk's character. I think he he is a, like a wrestler in it or something, or like he appears like during it during the match. So I'd like I'd like to track that episode down, maybe. Um, let, let me give a, a, a very quick shill, uh, which was a decent segue, but uh, through, throughout the summer, Place to Be Nation, we're starting up a tournament for the greatest TV character of all time. Wow. Uh, it, yeah, got a 256 names parv, and it's kind of in World Cup format. Wow. Where we have groups of eight people. Um, for the first round, you pick your top four, you vote for four, and then based on the total number of votes uh, each person gets, we're going to seed them that mm-hmm. way. So, like, the number one vote-getter in one group will face the number four in another group head-to-head uh, mm. and so forth. And uh, very, very intrigued with it. And uh, Beckett from Quantum Leap did make the top 256. So oh. if you're so inclined, you can vote for him. Excellent. Well, I, I do expect that uh tournament to be uh very u.s centric uh, uh yeah well I, I would say there's some actual uh i, I was uh, pleasantly surprised now doctor who your boy's not faring <laughs> very well but uh <laughs> well which one on the cusp. which uh, one right i mean we just did a generic doctor who doctor <laughs> who 
<laughs> so we, we didn't specify by the uh, actor. Um, yeah, well, you know, he's never called Doctor Who. He's called the Doctor. Uh, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I think the greatest uh, TV, my pick would be uh, George Costanza. I think he's the best TV character of all yeah, time. Costanza's a pretty good favorite, I would say. I mean, I mean, if I had to guess right now, the tournament's just started. Uh, if I had to guess who would win the whole thing, I would lean Homer Simpson. Just if uh, a gun to my head, if I had to guess based uh, on our demographic, feels um, very vanilla. That is a pick. Uh, but I, I can see George making a good run, certainly mm. into maybe the quarters or something like that. I, I wouldn't be shocked if Constanza won. I, I think drama actors really are going to have a little bit of a tough go at it when we get into the, the heavier rounds. Well, so yeah. even somebody like Tony Soprano may yeah. uh, get upset by, like, Beavis or something ridiculous. What about, like, what, like the, the trouble is, like, Walter White is clearly a great... TV character, yeah. but um, the problem is the problem you'll find with things like that is just people who haven't watched Breaking Bad or right, people right. who haven't watched The Sopranos are gonna get like everybody's seen like uh, Simpsons or like I mean here in this country, not a lot like Seinfeld is not that well. How about I say it's not that well known? Not everybody's seen Seinfeld because they just right. never showed it here. So it's kind of more like a kind of connoisseur's choice here. So if you did that vote with a with a, like George Costanza would come nowhere, so uh, it's interesting. Um, so let me just ask you real quickly because we did have, and I was not familiar with this show, Extras. 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 Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, so the uh, the the female lead from that show. From Extras. Uh, mm, we we had her in there. I don't know who threw her in or uh, what, uh, but she, yeah, Maggie Jacobs. Uh, she's probably going home in the first round. I mean, that's a good that's a good that's a good show, but I mean, if it's going to be any Gervais creation, it would be uh David Brent from The Office, who's probably yeah, no, I mean, he's in there too. Yeah, if he, so. I mean, if it was a fair thing, he'd be he'd be reaching the latest stages. But yes. I, I I suspect with your base that he may be going home early too yeah so this is a uh, a pretty interesting bracket overall because we have uh, John Luther in the same bracket so. right okay <laughs> but but um, neither one of them two are making but, it but like uh, I mean if I had to pick like British picks who should make it really far Blackadder you know Basil Fawlty these, these are great kind of British TV characters who uh, probably aren't represented Anyway, uh, 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 Terry Funk uh, as a as a, as the wrestler in Quantum Leap should be there as well. <laughs> um, anyway, speaking of uh, uh, Funk and uh, oh yeah, where, where can people go to vote on that tournament uh, again? Uh, so so yeah, so place to be nation dot com. We'll have uh, it. It'll be all over where we'll have we're putting up groups uh, Monday through Friday. Right now, we're putting up two groups for you to vote on. And in each post will be the previous uh, previous polls. So if you just want to go to the latest one, which will be on the front page, if you haven't voted, you can vote for all of them off of that one post. Uh, and I'm barely, I'm 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 all in on this one. I, I love tournaments. I think this is an interesting one. Uh, now that the site's grown, uh, in, in a year we we're hoping to get you know close to uh, 75 or 100 votes for each uh, each grouping. Uh, that'd be great. 
Hey Chad, is uh, is Fonzie Sorry. rep is Fonzie represented? Oh, let me. I'll have to look. I'll look that up on the Google Doc real quick. I, I would imagine. I would hope so, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Maybe people think he's jumped the shark. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, what you did there. Funk uh, Funk was recently injured in Japan, uh, and among other things, in an interview, he mentions um, uh, he, he gets asked about his recent kind of commentary work with uh, old Crispy, um, and uh, he says that he puts Jesse Ventura on a level by himself as a color commentator, but he credits uh, Vince for being a great guy uh, for him to play off uh, from. And then he's asked about like how Paul Lee and Jim Ross are faring as a commentary duo. Mm -hmm. And he says that uh, Paul Lee has a lot of potential to do anything in the business, which I thought was interesting that he's saying this in 91 and, you know, knowing the connection between Funk and uh, Heyman down the line. He also thinks that Bill Watt should come back to wrestling. Um, and then weirdly, he's mentioned, like, somebody asked him about Bobby Duncombe. And uh, he says that Bobby Duncombe is out of the business, but his two boys play ball for the University of Texas. Um, and, of course, well, one of Duncombe's sons was Bobby Duncombe Jr., who uh, went on to be in the West Texas uh, Rednecks. Do you remember yeah, them? rap is crap. Rap is crap. And now uh, he died in 2000. But um, I noted that he debuted in September 91, and he was trained by Dory uh, Funk Jr. and Terry Funk. Jeez. So Terry must have known that Duncombe, like he must have been training them right at this moment when this interview happened um which i thought was interesting he didn't mention it though um so there we go uh, uh that was it for that particular newsletter uh arthur arthur fonzarelli is in there oh he is uh, he is there pretty pretty tough bracket for him lucy ricardo's in his bracket right mr mr belvedere uh dwight Schrute, and uh batman from the uh, animated series, so uh, <laughs> may may be a short run for the Fonz. Mm -mm. That's a tough, uh, that's a tough draw. Group of yeah. death for uh, yeah. Fonzie there. We we do. Let me. Uh, God, we're <laughs> right off the rails. But let me just share with you what I do think is the group of death for us. Uh, just real shortly, we we posted it. Uh, it's it's Job from Arrested Development. Have you ever seen that show? Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. Seen it. So him, uh, Will Arnett, great character. Kermit the Frog. Christ, okay. Uh, Eric Taylor, Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights, which is a show you probably haven't seen, but it's a no. great show that really resonates, and it's very American-centralized. Uh, Elaine Bennis, uh, Mr. Mm -hmm. Belding from Saved by the Bell, Ralph Cramden from The Honeymooners, and uh, Spike from Buffy the Vampire. So, so that to me is a hmm. insane group where I actually didn't, uh, when I did my own vote, I didn't vote for Mr. Belding or Ralph Cramden. Uh, I'd have to go with Elaine in that group. Yeah, I went Elaine, uh, Joe, Kermit, and Coach Taylor. So, uh, hmm. yeah, very, very tough group there. Can you imagine Elaine pushing Kermit in the, you know, the Elaine push? I can imagine that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Kermit will go flying, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So that that was it. Any uh, any torch stuff? Uh, yeah, we had a couple of torch things. Um, so they're already bashing. This is torch one twenty four too. Uh, they're already bashing Sid uh, on his way out. They're showing his ten second loss to Lex from last year at the Clash uh, to hype up the upcoming Clash. 
So, so that's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Bruno, your boy, uh, your Times of Wrestling boy, Bruno Sammartino, has uh, turned down an offer to be a special guest on some of the East Coast uh, WCW shows. Mm. So he's showing his loyalty to the Herb Abrams uh, UWF. <laughs> and uh, Kel- Keller says that 30 minutes of TV time will be allotted to the Bobby Eaton versus Flair main event. And uh, both guys are taking the match very seriously and are pumped for it. Mm. Uh, more, more on that. And yes. then uh, Mark Madden uh, has actually a pretty interesting article. I did say there wasn't as many of these in the torches, but this was one of the better ones of the grouping I've uh, I read this time, where he argues, to, and, and I can't wait to hear your thought on that, he basically argues that Pillman should be made the champion in a Bob Backlund-type way. And mm-hmm. the way he kind of cruxes this argument as he relates flair to san martino as kind of this iconic leader of the the brand face of the organization Mm. and and kind of as a bridge to whatever the new face will be Mm. uh the bridge from bruno to hogan was back on and so the bridge from flair to whoever else is carrying that mantle will be pillman Mm. Mm. It, it felt really weird because I wouldn't relate Pillman and Backlund as kind of the same character on the surface. No. But it's more but kind the, of the, the overall general. Even though the weirder comparison is Flair and Bruno because... Yeah, they're very different workers, obviously. They're very different workers, but also, like, Flair's a heel. Yeah. Uh... And I, I think that's the, like the weirdest. This is weird. Like I mean, Flair is kind of the main boy for Crockett, and has been, you know, was the main boy for Crockett for a long time, right. but not in the same way. Not in the same. Like you can't draw that comparison. I mean, but Bruno, Bruno could uh, turn up and fart and sell out the MSG. You know, it's like it's kind of. I don't think Flair had that level of. Like he was obviously he's great and a great champion for the company, but I don't know. But also like Backlund's run was six years, um, and I what is he suggesting to book Pillman for six years? Yeah, I don't think that far, but I think um, mainly is just like a transition from now. Flair's not going to be the main focal point of the promotion. Uh, so he'll give the run to Pillman and then with whoever else they think is going to be the main focal point which probably at this point would still sting or Luger mm. uh, hopefully by at some point in time in the future maybe a year from now they'll be poised and ready to become the face of the company like uh, like Flair was for so many years mm. and like Hogan I mean like Hogan would become like kind of that second household name star superstar i mean i mean bob was certainly a big star in the wrestling sense but no bruno no hogan yeah okay no i can i can kind of see where he's going but my i would just say luger over flair make luger a big make put luger over big time which is what should have happened and what was being planned. Yeah, as, say, as we'll see, that's kind of what yeah. they were going for. But. And, you know, make Luger a big star. Maybe even, like, he's great as a babyface, but Luger's got some legs in him as a heel as well. 
Um, and I, I don't like obviously we know what happens, but like if they pull off that heel turn in, in a better way than they did, then Pillman is the obvious guy to feud with Luger, chasing the belt. And then maybe you can make Pillman into a big star by putting him over, putting him over Luger down the line. You know, sure. I don't know. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I, I don't, but I don't see it's very non WCW to have a babyface champ in the backland style. Um, which, which will uh, actually segue into something that uh, Meltzer talks about at length in the next uh, uh, Observer. Okay, go ahead because that was my uh, last note. Well, uh, buck your seatbelts, uh, people, because this is going to be uh, this is going to take a while. Um, there's some really interesting stuff here about finishes. This is the June the third Observer. If you want to track this one down, I'd say of all the newsletters I've read, this is one of my all-time favorites because <clears throat> Meltzer says that people by and large liked Super Brawl one, even though it wasn't the best show. It was pretty good and had lots of people. Uh, you know, people generally thought it was an all right show, but lots of people were complaining about the finishes on the show. Uh, Dave says that finishes aren't there to keep people happy, but to build future shows and gates, to cause an increase in the business, either for the short haul or the long haul. Uh, the problem with Super Brawl was that the finish of Flair versus Fujinami was an insult to the audience's intelligence. Now, we didn't really talk about the finish of that match too much. Uh, in fact, we, I don't think we even mentioned it, did we? Um, what was the finish of the Flair Fujinami? Yeah, I don't quite understand that because it felt like a pretty good Flair finish. I mean, basically, the Japanese referee that's the uh, was in the ring and Alfonso was on the outside, the Japanese referee gets uh, pushed down and is out of commission, and Flair rolls up, Fujinami has a hold of the tights, and Alfonso comes in and does the three count. But I don't really understand the beef with that. But anyway, <laughs> Meltzer basically uses this as an excuse to go off on one here. Okay. Um, and he says that one former world champion told him that even back in the day, when there were 32 territories, uh, there were 32 theories on the best way to draw money. And so basically what Meltzer does now is he goes and he breaks down uh, all of the different booking philosophies from the different territories from the 70s and then now in 1991. And I thought this was really interesting. So Meltzer grew up in, um, in the West, on the West Coast uh, in the Roy Shire territory, mm -hmm. uh, San Francisco uh, area. Right. So he grew up with that TV. Um, and uh, so he says, uh, you know, back in the day, the WF, and I, this was basically the kind of era that we cover on Titans of Wrestling, you know, uh, Bob Backlund, Bruno era, Vince Sr.'s WF he's talking about. Uh, he says it was very pattern orientated. So the big shows revolved around the main event. The babyface champ would work programs with various heels, who were usually big men. Uh, the program would be one to three matches, depending on the perceived drawing power of the heel challenger and depending on who was waiting in the wings uh, and you see this time and again you know somebody will come in they'll either have a one shot a two shot or a three shot against the champ uh, they book Bruno like this and they also book uh, Backlund like this he says the champ often lost the first or even the second match by DQ or by count out but they'd always be victorious uh, in the end um, Bruno and Backlund were booked in this manner like I said but Pedro Morales was the ex exception uh, in 73, um, kind of 1971, 73 sort of time, because they feared a riot if uh, Ped Pedro ever lost a match. <laughs> uh, 
Um, now, Roy Shire in California had a very similar booking pattern. He said, uh, but he had a wider range of finishes that Vince Sr. used. Um, Meltzer says that after about two years, one could learn every single Roy Shire finish and see them coming a mile off. Disputed endings would uh, be re reserved only for the main events, with the undercard matches mostly having clean finishes with the occasional time limit draw. The champ, however, could be a babyface or a heel, unlike New, uh, New York. Um, but otherwise, the booking was the pattern was much the same as Vince uh, Senior. However, Shire's blow-offs were not as clean as Vince Senior's, and usually there would be enough controversy to leave the loser with an excuse. Um, so maybe they could set up a rematch down the line, or you know, the, the face could save face, or the heel, you know, had a reason that he, that he lost. Um, also, in Shire's territory, titles could change hands on a countout or a blood stoppage finish, which I didn't, uh, I didn't know. So that, that you could actually win the title on a countout in San Francisco, apparently. Um, and now in St. Louis under Sam Muchnick, uh, what Meltzer calls the flagship NWA promotion. There was a much higher percentage of clean pinfall finishes, similar to all Japan, uh, except that there would occasionally, uh, occasionally they would do a DQ or a countout on the initial main event meeting. But then, the re in the rematch, the champ would almost always score a clean pin. In Florida, uh, and I can attest to this because I've watched uh, quite a bit of 70s uh, Florida footage uh, recently uh, over on PWO, if you want to find that thread um, Eddie Graham had virtually all his major events end with ref bumps allowing outside interference and I'm not kidding Chad every single match has a ref bump every single match has a run in <laughs> in Florida it's, it's ridiculous um, now Meltzer says that he was able to follow different promotions pretty closely in those days and he always he was always intrigued in these differences in booking philosophy and uh, I agree that it is quite interesting to see the different styles of, of booking um, now Dave notes that the circuits were very different and that the reasons for these different philosophies come from the context of uh, the way they work their loops. So Florida, for example, ran a weekly house show uh, as opposed to tri-weekly in San Francisco and of course monthly in New York. So they'd go to MSG every every month, they'd go to Philly every month. Um, so Graham, Eddie Graham needed more of these screwdriver finishes. He said it wouldn't be that uncommon to see Pac Song versus Dusty Rhodes headlining 10 weeks out of 12 and he says that because the fans never knew any different uh, Eddie could use all of his screwy finishes and they'd never know any any difference right so they were used to having like long stretches of the same match over and over again now in New York and San Francisco he he reckons the, fan would, the fans would get sick of a program like that and probably by the fourth match they'd be tapping out um, because that's how they'd been trained by the promoters. Um, and Amelta says that he always wondered how Florida fans didn't get sick of three ref bumps out of every four main events. But because they never knew any different, and because there was a monopoly in the area, uh, it didn't hurt that business, business that much in the early 70s, because the fans were used to it. He says when Shire went down the tubes in the late 70s because of lack of talent, and the AWA rolled into the area under Verne in the early 80s, um, the, the fans in San Francisco never took to the AWA product because the TV show was so lackluster. They grew up watching a better television product, so basically, uh, you know, AWA TV was too boring for them, essentially what Meltzer is saying. He says that in the Midwest, um, stuff that was drawing, you know, record gates, 
you know, the stuff they were doing with Hogan in 82 there was drawing yeah, record yeah. gates. Um, because the fans only knew that one style of wrestling. But in San Francisco, where they grew up on Shire, it seemed like a step down for the TV. And he yeah. said that it's interesting that when the WF rolled into town years later with a much better TV product, the fans embraced it immediately because that's what they'd come to know. Now, I thought that was interesting uh, stuff from Meltzer, that the context uh, the context kind of dictates the booking pattern. Right. And then he basically fast forward, and I thought this was even more interesting in a way, uh, to the current situation in 1991. So he looks at the various booking philosophies of uh, the different promotions. So WF, for example, and I don't think this is much new to anyone uh, who's seen any WF, is geared towards sending the... F so this is Vince Jr.'s WF now. Is geared towards sending the fans home happy with a happy ending. He says it's a storybook aimed at kids with simplistic characterization that is easily understood. He says that occasionally, uh, on in prelim matches, Pat Patterson loves to use misdirection, giving fans the impression that one guy has won, uh, and then have the ref raise the hand of the other guy, but only in prelims. Uh, I couldn't think of any examples of that, but um, maybe that happens on the on the on the full cards. Um, then he says Giant Barber does the uh, clean pinfalls in every single match, which ironically is not a long-term pattern based on outdated booking theory, but something that he started doing quite recently. Um, and he says that basically Barber started using clean finishes because during the heyday of the UWF, and this is not uh, Watts' UWF, it's the Japanese UWF, right? Mm -hmm. um, which had almost every match ended a submission. Um, uh, all Japan was starting to lose ground there and it was actually sort of drop off in the gates during that time old time uh, All Japan and uh, I think both me and you can attest to this Jack because we watched all those 80s matches right. invariably ended with a double count down yeah, yeah. and as far as, fan, yeah, as far as fan frustration with the main events uh, there may have been similarities to present day WCW in All Japan the big matches had great action for 20 minutes and then everyone would brawl to the back but then the popularity of UWF forced Barber to reevaluate his finishes um, and change his old style. His old style was shown as being outdated um, by the fans' response to the new style. So Barber switched to clean finishes, basically because the fans demanded it. And then he says Ricky Joshu, who books New Japan, does mainly clean pin pinfalls too, but not exclusively like Barber. He uh, he books big upsets once in a while, and uh, one of the examples he says is uh, Hanaga beating Liger for the junior heavyweight title, to give the impression that on any given day anyone could beat anyone. And uh, Melter says that this makes every near fall exciting because even when one thinks they know who's going to win, they don't know for sure, and that ad adds a lot of excitement to each and every matchup. In WF. The actual finish isn't that important, whereas in Japan, it's the only thing. He says in Mexico, uh, they book a lot of programs on the babyface getting humiliated, similar to the beginnings of programs in WF and WCW, but the humiliation isn't getting locked in a coffin or blinded by uh, you know, cologne in the eyes or whatever. It's generally getting beaten clean and losing face. And then to regain face after a clean loss, the losing babyface puts up his hair, mask or title which is uh, what the biggest programs usually come down to. All of which brings us to WCW. And uh, what, what is being done today is just an extension of what Eddie Graham did in Florida 15 years ago. And that shouldn't surprise anyone, says Meltzer, because that's where Dusty did most Dusty, of his learning yeah. and uh, most had most of his 
you know biz bigger successes but people's frustration with screwdrop finishes uh, says Meltzer have killed the house show business throughout the US you can trace it to one city after the other where the crowds built up and peaked and then they started nosediving usually it was the famed dusty finish which was really an Eddie Graham finish from the early 70s that did it the dusty finish helped to kill Greensboro Charlotte Chicago st. Louis Philly and Baltimore what the finish didn't kill no shows did so that was really interesting I thought and um, you know he says the point is there's no correct way to book and draw money um, there are different ways that have been proven to be successful but the WCW method at least today is not one of them um, so this is quite a convoluted way of uh, saying that the dusty finish is uh, is is not helpful to the promotion but uh, what do you make of all that Chad because you've seen lots of 91 have you seen a real difference in the booking philosophies so so WCW to me feels really scattered based on what we're we'll discuss coming up especially um i actually see a bigger paradigm shift i think actually in a little bit in the wwf uh where they really get dark in the summer and fall mm -hmm. i kind of started seeing that a little bit with the desert storm stuff uh i mean i mean slaughter fire uh, throws a fireball in hogan's face immediately mm -hmm. after wrestlemania 7 which uh, felt like an interesting uh surprising type of uh memphis -y type feud escalation and then like i said in the uh in the summer and fall when you start getting the jake roberts character and the undertaker coming in you have the uh warrior locked in the casket stuff you have uh the jake roberts uh macho man stuff which is very dark probably the darkest of wcw of wwf ever did honestly yeah yeah without uh, doubt so, so tuesday in texas yeah so very uh very kind of interesting shift in their booking um for them and uh, wcw i think with what happens in the summer was just kind of trying to find their bearings and it really doesn't happen until the dangerous alliance comes in and what really interested me about this was that Meltzer was suggesting that the, the Eddie, Eddie Graham's booking strategies worked for Florida, but Dusty had basically transported them from Florida to like a national promotion, and it just wasn't going to work. Do, do you agree? Do you think that's a really good point, or do you think that's true? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think Graham's was pretty territorial in in uh, in theory. And it was a little uh, apprehensive to think that would work on a national level. Mm. I can agree with that. I, I don't know. I mean, I... I, I... And, now, well, this is something I want to discuss more with you. I'll just read uh, Meltzer's final kind of comments here. Because um, I think there's actually quite a bit of... Because we've actually seen some of this play out in modern WE a little bit. Which I want to get to in a moment. He says Super Brawl uh, 1 had uh, six run-ins and three ref bumps. Meltzer says they're digging themselves into a hole with all of these finishes. He says, if a wrestler can't lose cleaning on occasion, unless the entire promotion is built around him, he's of no value to the promotion in the long haul. You can't keep everyone not losing all the time. Invincibility does not exist in any sport today. If the Bulls get knocked out with the playoffs, Michael Jordan doesn't lose his heat or drawing power. So if wrestling is being pushed as a work version of a competitive sport, losing should be no big deal. 
If the game is strictly building personalities, you pick your invincible man, because He-Man, Hulk Hogan, and Perry Mason almost never put anyone over. <laughs> if, you, if everyone loses cleanly at times, their near falls can again become important. If upsets occur, then there will be added tension in every match. If the results of matches uh, are stressed as being something important, then there is some interest in just presenting wrestling matches in and of themselves. And only at that point will the occasional controversial finish or hot shot angle mean something, because then it becomes something different rather than an everyday occurrence. If almost every match on a show ends with a clean finish, then instead of people being mad about the occasional screwdriver finish, that screwdriver finish will instead make fans want to see the issue settled in a rematch. And of course, then the issue needs to be settled in that rematch. So I'll stop here, because uh, Dave then goes on at length about what else is wrong with WCW at the moment. And I think this kind of critical beatdown is his favourite hobby horse. Like, I think that's basically Meltzer's favourite topic, like what's wrong with WCW. And probably will be for the next ten years. Um, but is he right? Uh, because I think all of these things that he's talking about have actually been brought into play. Like, I think modern WE for about the last what three four five years has been booked basically along these lines hasn't it with clean jobs uh everybody losing to everybody and weirdly it's something that i see people complaining about on the boards yeah um it, it's they've certainly gotten more clean with their finishes um I, I, it, it, I think it kind of goes into whether it's the finishers that mean more or the actual people that are competing behind it. I mean, I, I would definitely put more emphasis in uh, the stars, the star quality. Mm. Uh, but but I do think, I mean, I do think booking plays a role in that and how well people are booked. But I think the character has to be, you have to be resonated in the character and invested. Like, I mean, John Cena and Bray Wyatt just had a match last month at Payback. Mm. And uh, that I thought that was a, a really well-booked match. And it was a clean finish. It was a last-man-standing match. And uh, it was really well-booked. But, you know, you have the Cena problems with people with Cena are just sick of that. And that was a feud that had been going on since January, so the feud overall people were completely sick of, too. And as a result, a match that with maybe two more characters or a more hotly contested feud, would uh, that would have probably been a surefire match of the year contender and even a heavy favorite. It's mm. a match now that most people ranked high and enjoyed, but probably won't be uh, in heavy match of the year consideration, I don't think. See, the, the thing I don't get with uh, Melter's argument here is that he seems to suggest that WCW should kind of be doing what they're doing in Japan, right? Right. They should, they should follow the lead of Giant Barber and Ricky Choshu by booking... Uh, but, like, so... What worked in Florida 15 years ago isn't working for WCW. But why does Meltzer think that what's working in Japan should work for for uh, WCW? I don't. I don't necessarily. Because um, I, 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 context's important, right? I, I don't know if like. I mean, if you're an NWA fan, you're used to screw job finishes, right? So I don't know. I don't know if I. I don't know if I. Uh, if I necessarily agree that more clean jobs is going to be is going to be something that's uh, going to help kickstart the promotion in any way. I don't know, you know. I, I, will it that make that much difference? 
We, we I mean, we see Tommy Rich take a clean job every week. You know, right. I, I don't. Yeah. I don't know what difference it makes. Yeah, so I, I don't I, think it'd make that big of a difference. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I just think that um, it, it, there seems to be a slight kind of weird double, kind of slight kind of not contradiction, but you know, one rule for one rule for Dusty and a different rule for uh, for the Japanese contingent here, because clearly Meltzer prefers clean, clean, uh, clean pins, right? That's what uh, I take from all of this. Um, I don't know. I mean, did like. Everybody always says, "Oh, I'd like to see a clean finish on a match," but is it always the best thing? I no. Don't know. Yeah, certainly not. Yeah, I don't know. And I actually think that WF are very smart uh, in, with the way they book their heels a lot of the time. Like, uh, you know, my my boy Ted, for example, in the whole time he was there, I don't know how many uh, clean jobs he did on TV. They'd always use the double canto or. You know, they'd they'd find a way of protecting all of their guys. You know, um, yeah, I, I think they. I don't know. Um, I'm uh, I'm rather controversially not. Don't always think that clean pins are the best thing, because like you get you end up with a guy like Chris Jericho. What does it mean to beat Chris Jericho now? Well, what does yeah, it mean? I mean, even uh, I mean, look at Ring of Honor in their. Uh, in their heyday, I mean, that was a complete clean win uh, company, and they they had a good run. But eventually, you know, you do see that that can't really sustain for years or decades. You know, you have to have an angle surrounding it. You, you have to. I mean, this is going to be an analogy that will be lost on most of the listenership. But like, if you have clean pins for everybody on the car, you end up with an entire league of Fulhams. Fulham FC, I don't know if uh, like like mid-table kind of mediocre uh, wrestlers, rather than you need big, you need a Brazil, you need Manchester United or whatever your big NFL teams are. Like you can't have, you have to have the big stars who don't lose, and you have to like you have to have a pecking order, don't you? Yeah, I don't know. yeah. Pecking uh, order, and then I would say unique finishes that are different to kind of build up the uh, the vendettas to build towards a clean finish. So when you do get the clean finish, it feels like it was a journey that you took that it was rewarding at the end. Yeah. My, my only... My, my main criticism of the way, especially WF booked at this time, is that heels would never get a clean pin. Like, it doesn't matter if it's... It, it literally doesn't matter who the heel is. It could be like Rick Martel taking on Coco Beware and Martel will grab the trunks or use the rope or that's something I've always noticed there's always cheap they always go for the cheap finish when the heel wins in WF right um, they have to put over you have to put over the heel strong sometimes as well uh, but not too much otherwise you get Triple H anyway <laughs> um, let's, uh, let's let's move on I think that's uh, I, I, I found that a very interesting uh, read and uh, interesting thing to consider I would say interesting to uh, being done at this point in time because I think it definitely shifts like I said with what happens in WCW and then uh, the WWF getting progressively darker it feels like they sort of mm. change a lot of their philosophies yeah I, I think it's definitely true that Dusty's stuck in a time warp though and that he doesn't get that the same things can't work in different contexts. Um, and he hasn't learned any of his lessons, has he? Yeah. Do you remember Chicago in 87? Yeah, it can, it can be tough to come up. I mean, Dusty was someone that 
it feels like he had a lot of creative ideas at the time and uh and i mean it's 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 kind of tough to think about like even in my life i think about like any time i've had a creative idea i do find it difficult to then four or five years later be asked to do something different you know what i mean like you may have one good idea in you but it's it's pretty tough to have two yeah well and and andy warhol made a whole career of just the one idea so (laughs) uh, it's it's possible um i I was gonna say uh, one other thing about uh oh yeah eddie Graham. now everybody talks about eddie graham as a great finnish guy right you always say, oh, yeah, you know, Bill Watts learned from Eddie Graham. Right. Like, even uh, Terry Funk uh, mentioned Eddie Graham in the, uh, in, the in-, in that radio interview. Um, I have to say, watching the 70s Florida, oh, I don't know if I could have uh, stuck, like, every single match has a ref bump. It's like, oh, give me a break, you know. Um, I don't know if, uh, I don't know how great a booker Eddie Graham was based on, based on that. I, I, well, I guess if the people kept on coming back, it must have worked. But um, I'm surprised that that territory didn't burn itself out. And what happened to Florida? They did basically burn out in the end, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Right. So anyway, um, on another note, um, he's very excited for Clash 15. Is Dave Meltzer um, for various different reasons? He says it has every reason to be a great show. Which we'll talk about in a moment. Yeah, Keller was very optimistic too. I was stunned. How yeah, there's kind of a pre kind of smart fan buzz around the Clash 15 mm-hmm. for some reason. Um, there's some talk of Bruce Pritchard coming in either as a color commentator or as a manager, since the brother love character has been discontinued on WF, and he and Dusty are friends. So there we go. Um, can you imagine brother love in WCW? <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't think that would have played well at all. But uh. Ratings on TBS are down to 1.9, which is horrible, apparently. Um, and Steve Austin is set to come in and work with Bobby Eaton. Uh, Murdoch and Slater are definitely coming in, but not with masks. And uh, my next one is June 10th. Okay, so uh, Torch125, he actually has a note that they're not interested in hiring Bruce Pritchard. Yeah. So uh, we have them and... Uh, him and Meltzer kind of disagree in there. Uh, Ross's radio show debuted. It's on a WSB radio, which locally in Atlanta is the the biggest kind of AM radio station uh, at the time. Did the Braves baseball at that time. Uh, mm. So so it debuted with Paul Lee as the co-host. Right. Uh, Keller says the real test is next week with how I guess smarky it's going to be. Uh, mm. Because Dusty will be the guest next week. Uh, <laughs> Yellow Dog, Yellow Dog has debuted, which we'll get to that. I wonder if that uh, Ross show in '91 was any better than his current uh, show. <laughs> his uh, current podcast, I don't know. <laughs> Christ, have you listened to that yet? Yeah? I've listened to one episode. Uh, can't say I was uh, a huge fan. But... Yeah, I, mean, I listened to one episode too, not a second. Yeah. Now, uh, now th- I thought this was an interesting note. He says that Bill Apter is scheduled to be running the distribution of WCW magazine. Mm. And he asked, uh, he kind of puts it out there like he wonders what's going to happen to PWI and his involvement in that. Which I, I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe somebody with better knowledge will know if Apter actually did come on board for WCW magazine. 
but I, I thought that was very interesting. And then they had the buy rate for Super Brawl, which they said uh, Keller reports that did a 1.1, mm. which was uh, lower than any WCW or WWF pay-per-view in a while. Matt has got 1.04. Okay, so fairly close, but yeah, pretty uh, kind of a disappointing buy rate for Super Brawl, and that's all for uh, Torch 125. Yeah, well, basically the same stuff here. Don't express, don't expect Bruce Pritchard to come in for any kind of job, says Meltzer, because Evil Jim Hurd is not interested in bringing him in at all. So, uh, Hurd not a fan of Pritchard. And uh, Pritchard basically stays at WF forever, doesn't he? He's still there now, isn't he? Uh, I don't think he's there still. I think he now he was, actually he was there. DNA, right? Oh, was he? He was there for a long time. Yeah, right? yeah, he's been in and out for a while. Um, Super Brawl did around 140,000 buys, which is that 1.04, grossing around 2.8 million, um, of which WCW get 1.1 million. Uh, now, Wrestle War did 155,000 buys, which was a 1.2. Starcade did a 1.0. Halloween Havoc, 1.2. Last year's Bash, 1.7. Yeah. All things all things considered, when you go through the, uh, when you consider the awful TV ratings that WCW have, yeah. this isn't that bad, says Meltzer. Um, he thinks that WCW does have a core of fans, roughly about 1% of the, of the total pay-per-view audience. And I thought this was interesting. That's about a hundred thousand people or so uh, who are wrestling junkies who they can count on to buy every show. And I think you saw that with the uh, with the New Japan show, right? 0.7. Yeah. Not that much of a drop off. Now some people say that they're doing too many pay per view shows, but Meltzer says uh, they should experiment with running one every six weeks, drawing those same hundred thousand fans again and again. What do you think of that idea? Um, so every six weeks would be, what, about eight a year? Yeah, mm. I, I can get on board with that, eight or nine a year. I, th- I, I think that's probably actually ultim- optimal uh, now where we're at the price. I mean, I, I actually commend WWE a little bit from going down from at one point they had, I think, 16 pay-per-views a year in 2007, 2008, to now they're down to 12, uh, mm. which is good. Or 13, yeah. 12 or 13, I can't remember which number, but they've cut a few out. No, I, I, I can see his, his point, right? If there's, if you're going to get a guaranteed million dollars from every pay-per-view, run them. Run, run, run uh, get as many as you can get away with, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a prickly path, because then you get into the oversaturation argument, but uh, you just have to know how much you can push your luck, Um decide from there uh, so I, I do have another one June 17th so I, there's a fourth one I, I didn't spot here well the only only other thing on uh, Torch 126 was Austin won the TV belt but uh, it'll of course be shown on TV very late after that and Dusty is no longer a TV on air character uh, he won't be doing color any longer he won't be uh, hanging out the bull drop in. Uh, mm. So they kind of dropped his character. And then Bruce Mitchell actually had a good article in that uh, in that torch on the pressure of being a second generational wrestling star. Talked a little bit about Greg Gagne and sort of transitioned that into what uh, what Dustin Rhodes has going for him right now. And that's it. Uh, the next torch, Torch 127, is the review of the actual clash. 
Mm. Well, uh, yeah, Melts are much the same. He's got the um, the drastically reducing Rhodes' TV time, which you can imagine. Uh, you know, Melts has basically got a boner here, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, with him being replaced on the Clash uh, by Tony Schiavone. Uh, the ball drop in segment is being dropped. And uh, Meltzer says, this has led to speculation about Dusty's future as a booker. Um, now, I want to say that that's a bit of editorial license and wishful thinking from Meltzer here. The speculation is Meltzer's. That's what I'm saying. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, because of this, Dusty's no longer going to be a character. Yeah. Seems a little presumptuous, or a uh, booker. Yeah, now, uh, there's a lot of stuff... Uh, well, he, he says it's the uh, WCW higher-ups who've decided this, so uh, he, it's interesting to see Meltzer put a spin on it, you know. Um, there's a lot of stuff about Dr. Zahorian here. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, I know he's a WF guy, uh, and uh, we, we see him uh, we, we see him in Titans um, occasionally, but uh, he was found guilty of 17 counts of illegal drug trafficking, um, which uh, was, was going on at this time. But uh, he feels like a bit of a scapegoat to me, Zahorian. Like, obviously, like he is a doctor and he shouldn't be uh, trafficking drugs. But um, like, I'm sure they turned a blind eye to a lot of guys taking uh, illegal substances in both promotions at this time. Uh, and finally, Bruno Sammartino um, says that he's willing to come out of retirement for a match against Larry Zbysko at the Meadowlands, but, but only only if he has complete control in the setting up and execution of the program. Um, so, uh, interesting, uh, the, the idea of a San Martino versus Zabisco rematch in 1990. Uh, I wonder how old uh, Bruno was then. He must have been in his 50s, maybe? Yeah, I can look that up real quick, but him, that in 1991 doesn't sound like a... Uh yeah, he was born in 1935, so he'd have been he'd have been 56. Right. So okay. That or 54, uh, uh, 55 actually, because he was born in October. So that doesn't sound like a very very. Uh, I wouldn't be very optimistic that that would be uh, breaking house house show records and stuff like that. That program in 1991. No. Um, okay. So that's it. Let's uh, let's get on with our own clash review. All right. We are back, ladies and gentlemen, live at the Civic Auditorium in Knoxville, Tennessee. We are about to see the appearance, the second appearance, the first appearance on TBS of Oz. Tony, we saw this man. He's over seven feet tall, well over three hundred pounds. His first appearance was on uh, the 19th of May in St. Petersburg. What an awesome appearance that was, and the fans are standing here, there in awe of what they're seeing so far, and wait till they get a look at this guy. Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest, it is at for one fall. Introducing first, at over seven feet tall, he weighs 325 pounds. Oz! And of course, Oz has the great wizard at his side. 
A huge man. A huge man, and that is about impressive as you can get. You know, in this sport, Jim, there's a lot of lot of psyching out of your opponents. And if that doesn't psych out your opponent, I don't know if anything it does. It would certainly give me second thoughts about ever signing a contract with an athlete this size. First time ever on TBS, and you're singing live here at the Clash of Champions. Oh, the silver hair and the seven foot plus, 325 pounder, steps easily over the top rope. And ladies and gentlemen, the opponent of Oz from Montgomery, Alabama, 225 pounds, Johnny Rich. We're in uh, Knoxville, USA, um, at the Civic Auditorium in Tennessee, and uh, Missy Hyatt is here in a pink jumpsuit, uh, and uh, Paul Lee is also here doing a funny stereotypical New Yorker thing, uh, which I thought was quite funny from him. Uh, any any comments about Hyatt and Paul Lee here, Chad? Well, there's a, a fairly, fairly odd kind of start with the uh, where we jump right to Missy. Mm. Uh, and then, then they sort of set up their first little skit, and then it goes to Tony and uh, Jr. But a, kind of a theme for the night with a lot of segments. I mean, this is a loaded show for only about two hours of runtime. Mm. Yes, and that will I th- I uh, suspect be a talking point as right. we as we go forward. Um, so our hosts are Tony Schiavone, looking very, very thrilled to have Ice Dusty from the booth. He's looking mm-hmm. like particularly pleased with himself tonight, Tony, and uh, and Jim Ross. So uh, we're back to the kind of old school setup, like Bob Coddle style, like two lead commentators style uh, here. Yeah, and I, I really like this pairing. Um, I think as we go along uh, throughout. I can't remember when they actually stopped doing that. I think it's 92 when Jesse comes in. I want to say Jesse does Super Brawl too. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, so so we only get this little pairing for about six months, about four Super Shows, but I, I really like them together. I thought they did a good job. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and uh, I don't know, Tony still hasn't lost it at this point, I don't think. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. He won't do for a while, I would say. Um, and I can't, and I'll just say I can't wait for Jesse to turn up. But still, in in the meantime, um, so uh, get this for a par of all stars match: Fabulous Freebirds and Bad Street taking on fucking T- Tom Zenk and the Young Pistols. So uh, look at this now: Jimmy Garvin and the Z Man in the same match. Um, the Freebirds come to the ring with uh, what seems like a dozen people. Big Daddy Dink is there. There's some girl there. Was that DDP there as well? Yeah, I, yeah. DDP came out without saying good God, which yeah. I was surprised. But it's like uh, the Freebirds have got a massive entourage all, all times. The, uh, um, and they've got these uh, stats again, the, uh, the, the, the captions. Mm-hmm. Hayes and Garvin, with the help of their new teammate Brad uh, Badstreet, beat the Young Pistols for the US titles at Super Bowl 91, we're told. Um now we also slyly have a little bit of brother versus brother action here uh, with uh, Scott Armstrong taking on Bad Street they're secretly yes, brothers so, yeah. 
Yep. Uh, but sadly, the ref is not Scott Armstrong. We we get Bill Alfonso, who right. seems like he stayed on after his uh, Japan show. Uh, like Alfonso's there all the time now. Um, now, how do you describe Bad Street's look here, Chad? Um, well, he's 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 in a black bodysuit uh, with a black mask, but then he also has some of the neon pink and uh, green streaks running through the bodysuit and has mm. a bad street written on the uh, back of it. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, mean it, I, I don't think unless it was pertinently obvious that you would know right offhand that it's Brad under the hood. No, I don't think you'd ever know, would you? I, yeah, unless but, um, you were like in the know. How many fans would even know who Brad Armstrong is? Well, I, I, would, I would hope that at least the WCW faithful would know, but still, yeah, I don't think you could put two and two together. And it's actually clever with the debut uh, at, at a Super Brawl that, you know, Arms, Brad Armstrong came out earlier in that match and then got kicked to the back and then mm. would come out later in the suit with the feathers. So, I mean, they've dropped all that mess and changed his name to Bad Street, which Ew. was an upgrade. What happened to Fantasia? Yeah, Fantasia has now been repackaged as Bad Street. Squawk! Squawk! <laughs> so, uh, that was a step in the right direction. Um, what do you make of this uh, matchup? So, so I guess it's like in the Freebirds contract that I have to start every Super Show now, because I can't tell you how annoyed I am to fire up one of these things and to hear the free bird music <laughs> and Jimmy Garvin come strutting down every time. Uh, this this is really short. Um, Z-Man and Garvin start off. Uh, we get we get kind of a hot sequence from the baby faces where they get some drop kicks and hip tosses and the young pistols do stereo crossbody dives. Mm. We got a big free bird sucks chant from the crowd that Tracy Smothers was revving up. Uh, Michael Hayes and Tracy paired off next, and I really liked them in their little series last year that the free birds and the Southern Boys had. Uh, but they they weren't able to do much at all because uh, Garvin got caught c- coming off the top rope by Steve, and they do a catapult double clothesline by Zink. Uh, they the action spilled to the outside, and we see uh, Gary Michael Capetta, who again <laughs> is on the headset talking to somebody, and I don't I can't figure this out for the life of me. <laughs> It's um, one of the big mysteries. You you have to you have to get Scott and Justin to ask Capetta. They're mates with him. Ask what the hell are you doing on the yeah, phone? It's, it's All those shows. It's like he's on the headset just talking a mile a minute. Uh, so then Tracy got sent to the guardrail and the hills took over. And I thought we were kind of settling into the match a little bit, but literally like a minute later we get an abrupt triple sunset flip and the the faces get the win. I mean, this this was a sudden sudden uh, kind of change in tone of the match where the faces just won kind of out of the blue. Uh, so, I mean, not, not much as an opener, not much depth at all. Like yeah. a star and a half for me. Star and three quarters for Meltzer. Um, yeah. Dud racing for me. Uh, because <laughs> uh, this felt overly choreographed, and I really don't like that. It's like, uh, I mean, I'm not the biggest Lucha fan in the world, but my least favorite Lucha is the Lucha that seems choreographed. And right. this seemed to have elements of that, you know, with the, it's almost like a tree, like a bad, really bad, uh, trios match. 
um, with uh, you know with a triple finish. And uh, even Meltzer picked up on it. He says, uh, "Oh look," he says, "it came off more like a lucha libre." I, I didn't even know that he'd said this. Uh, it came off more like a lucha libre match than a pro wrestling match, however, with them rushing through the spots without building heat. When the finish was shown on replay, it looked really bad. However, since you could see too plainly that all three heels bending over, ready to get, uh, getting ready for the finish, and uh, yeah, I don't like, um, I don't like things that look choreographed in any way. And uh, it wasn't just the finish. I thought lots of the match felt like that. Um, plus, I really hate to see Zenk get a win of any sort. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I didn't. Terrible opener. Um, uh, Keller gave it two and a quarter. So, he, he liked it a decent amount. Jeez, what match was he watching? <laughs> <laughs> uh, at least we didn't get the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah's from Garvin. Yeah, no, yeah, 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 or no good God. I was, <laughs> I, that was like the biggest upset of the night. Uh, um, but, yeah, like, our, like briefly, we had redemption for the Freebirds over the last few shows, but the, back to real crap here. Yeah, this wasn't good, but uh, very, very short, too. So now we get the Great American Bash sweepstakes. It's, uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong, it's Robin Leach from Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous here who tells us you can win Ric Flair's watch. You can stay at the Omni and get $700 spending money uh, at the Omni Hotel. Just complete the phrase, to be the legend and to be the best, it takes more than cash. I'm going to walk that aisle and... Now, I couldn't work this out. What was the phrase, Chad? Cause, uh, I don't know either. Uh, I, I, I couldn't figure that. won the sweepstakes. I, I wouldn't either. I didn't know the phrase. Well, if you do know the phrase, uh, listeners, you can write to P.O. Box 7888 Atlanta GA 30357. Uh, send a slash, <laughs> slap the draft envelope, and uh, I'm sure you'll be able to, to win Ric Flair's watch. Um. <laughs> I thought $700 was like the most random arbitrary number as far as spending money like not 500 not a thousand but 700 it's like how did we land on that and that well that had an accountant accountant tell it accountant's budget uh buttery constraints written all over <laughs> it's it to me. ridiculous <laughs> 700 dollars <laughs> uh, um yeah so i'm sure somebody will be able to complete that phrase it was so weird because they had Flair. Like Flair was doing a lot of these kind of like straight camera commercial bits mm-hmm. on this show. Yeah, we got a couple on this show. So, um, and uh, so we went from that surrealness to uh, the second appearance of Oz now. And I was like, oh my fucking god, are they going to do it again? Like, the, the, like they hadn't learnt. They're going to they're going to run with this. So we get loud guitar music, uh, castle made out of cloth, and. Uh, <laughs> And the Grand Wizard, the Great Wizard, the Great Wizard with Oz, comes out. Yeah, so uh, so they have they have scaled back a little bit of the entrance. We didn't get Dorothy or uh, Scarecrow, Tin Man, Cowardly Lion. He has a rock theme now, which I think is good. Instead of Kevin Sullivan constantly <laughs> saying "Welcome to Oz" over the PA. Uh, the crowd kind of pops for the pyro, but of course they, they still, you can tell the crowd still doesn't know how to react to this guy. And, and um, it, it's just not working. I, I mean, it's still dreadful. It's not as bad as Super Brawl, but I think seeing the Super Brawl entrance kind of prepped me for this, whereas this is the only thing I've seen. I've been, uh, been shaking my head pretty, mm. pretty uh, vagrantly, but 
after seeing the Super Brawl stuff, I was like, well, okay, this is a step in the right direction. A so, short, short stutter step in the right direction. The funniest part of all this was Tony Schiavone on commentary trying to justify all of this total nonsense as psyching out your opponent. Yeah, it's like, could you imagine being in the ring and seeing this? I was like, I don't know why I would be scared of... Uh, a guy removing an old man mask, but uh, apparently it's intimidating to Tony. This is probably the worst gimmick of all time, I would say. Uh, <laughs> now, there is a match taking place here. It's Oz taking on Johnny Rich. Oh, and what a jobber entrance he gets. Um, He's just completely already in the ring. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I've got the note here. Capetta couldn't make Johnny Rich sound any shitter. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and in the ring, Johnny Rich. <laughs> it's like, it's like... <laughs> um, Rich was a, a regular on Georgia TV back in uh, back in the day. Uh, I, I believe that he worked Memphis for the longest time, though. Uh, he's on pure job duty here, though. And uh, oh, yeah. how long does this go? Like thirty seconds or something? Yeah, not long at all. I just got a shoulder block. He had a nasty clothesline where Rich was dumped like right on his neck. Uh, which he could have pinned him there, but he picks him up, and then he gives him a big boot side slam and his little kind of whirly bird uh, powerbomb to end it. So um, we go from Oz now to PN News. Uh, and, uh, well, I wrote this down. My name is PN News, and I'm ready to attack. Put the sucker in. Lay him on his back. Yo, baby, yo, baby, yo. I mean, he's, he's hardly just a genius, is he? Uh, this is a truly atrocious rapping here with We're, PN News. So, uh, PN News on your Wu-Tang Clan uh, power rankings. Well, he's below you, God, which says a lot. Above, above Cappadonna. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, he, he is he is woeful. Um, I'll, I'll get back to PN News because we get a longer appearance from him later. But uh, this, this is just the preview. This is just the sneak go. peek of uh, fucking hell. Um... <laughs> So, I just can't. I can't even imagine what some of the old uh, NWA faithful were thinking when he came out. <laughs> PN News is bad. Uh, uh, PN News is an actual gimmick. I made things worse than Oz. I, if we're being honest, I got on a. They're both bad. Well, uh, Dangerous Dan Spivey comes out now, and um, he uh, he's going to wrestle Big Josh. The graphic tells us that Spivey left the N- the NFL to wrestle. Uh, and it also tells us that Big Josh is an avid outdoorsman who's only uh, wrestled in WCW for five months. Um, Tony calls this the biggest match of uh, his short career. Uh, and yes, it is indeed a big match for Big Josh's rookie year here. And they really went on this, like the inexperience of Big Josh. And... Yeah, they're still <laughs> going with this narrative that he's only been wrestling for five months. Um, there's just something about these Big Josh matches that I don't like at all because they're all punches and kicks, and but they're just done in such a lackadaisical way for me that they don't resonate at all. And uh, this was the same thing where it's all punch and kicks. Uh, Spivey did do a Japanese arm drag. Josh was able to give Spivey a suplex, but Spivey pretty much no sold that and came right back with a clothesline. Uh, Josh then gave him a back suplex uh, and did get a little bit of reaction from the crowd, which I was surprised about. But then we get this finish, which I uh, 
fault was just absolutely asinine. So Kevin Sullivan comes running down the ramp with a crutch. Big Josh is staring right at him. Like, he is facing Kevin Sullivan, can see him clear as day, Hmm. and he decides to run the ropes in Kevin Sullivan's direction with the crutch. Uh, Now, what what he thought Sullivan was going to do, like he was just going to stand there, I have no idea. So, So the crutch hits Josh in the back. Again, I mean, as dumb as Big Josh was, this was in plain sight of the referee, the crutch smashing on Big Josh's back. So how that's not a disqualification, I'll never know. Uh, and Josh no-sells the crush shot. Uh, like, it, he kind of pretty much kind of shakes it off a little bit, but he's dazed and distracted. And then Spivey hits the German suplex and pins him. I thought this was one of the dumber finishes on all on all accounts that we've seen. I mean, I, I, I could, for the life of me, can't imagine. There's nothing I hate worse than dumb baby faces. And with the replays, seeing Big Josh stare right at Kevin Sullivan and then run the ropes in his direction and turn his back to him when he's holding a crutch <laughs> in a weapon position. I mean, how fucking stupid do you have to be? Well, Chad, you have to chalk it up to an experience, don't you? Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, then, and then the referee's looking right at it. There's, there's a crutch. There's wood flying all over the ring. And the referee just decides to let this go. <laughs> Melz has got an interesting uh, little uh, note on this match cause, and you mentioned it as well he says uh, in over 10 years of uh, watching Japanese wrestling I've never seen a Japanese wrestler use what Jim Ross calls a Japanese arm drag <laughs> what's a Japanese arm drag yeah it's mainly the over the top where he kind of flips him over instead of using his hips in a sideway motion but you know, what, like, the, like a Ricky Steamboat arm drag no because because steamboat still does the perfect it, it's really gonna be tough for me to mm-hmm. describe but um you know how like in a back body drop how the the wrestler taking the move kind of floats over the entire body of his opponent and falls yeah. flat on his back mm-hmm. that's kind of what a japanese arm drag is where you hook arms and then the person just floats completely over Right. In that okay. motion, instead of you kind of doing a sideways arm drag motion where you, the person performing the move lands on his side almost. Right. Uh, okay. So, so that's the difference there. But yeah, this this finish I thought was pure shit. I, I uh, was really annoyed at this one. I I hate Big Josh. <laughs> Oh, uh, it's always fun uh, to hear you rant, Chad. <laughs> well, <laughs> I got nothing to say about this match at all. Um, I uh, I don't I do not care for Dan Spivey, and I do not care for Big Josh, and so <laughs> and I I really really don't care for Kevin Sullivan running in, which is literally all he does now. When was the yeah. last time Kevin Sullivan had a match? match. Yeah, <laughs> um, anyway, you should go back to. Uh, Back to having bras in toilets. Oh God, yeah. So um, Keller gave that a three-fourths a star. That th- this is a match that gets a dud from me. I don't give them that many. This is a dud. Quarter of a star from uh, from Meltzer. Yeah. Uh, I would also agree with you. I mean, awful opening to the show. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> the free free birds, <laughs> free birds, young pistols with Zenk involved. Oz versus Johnny Rich and this. They've an awful, awful start to any show. Yeah. 
Yeah, here we <laughs> get ready. Um, so it's WCW top ten time, as right. compiled by promoters and members of the board of directors. At ten, we've got Stunning Steve. Uh, nine, One Man Gang. Yeah. Eight, Barry Windham. Seven, Arn Anderson. So literally, those two just doing nothing. Uh, six, Sting, which is really low for Sting. I thought that was low too. I made that same note. Uh, five, Nikita Kodoff. Uh, four, Beautiful Bobby. Very high for, for Eaton. Here uh, we go. Uh, three, El Giante. Uh, two, Great... No words for that. Two... No, when I saw that type <laughs> on the screen, I was I was ready to throw in the towel on this show. Uh, two, The Great Muta. One, Lex Luger. And, of course, uh, the champ is Flair. And I suppose they've done away with the top ten tag ranks because we don't get them here. Um, interesting lineup there. Uh, El Giante above most of the card. Great Muta straight in at two, um, and Bob Eaton at four above Sting. So interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, Paul Lee is uh, in the ring now <laughs> for an edition of the Danger Zone. <laughs> so, and ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Herbie. <laughs> <laughs> he's uh Herbie's rocking a ridiculous mullet. <laughs> His mullet <is> so bad. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's like the most ninety one mullet of all time. Uh Paulie does uh, the Roddy Piper thing of like not letting Herbie answer any of his questions. Um so he says, uh You're dating Missy Hyatt, right? Yeah, says Jason uh Hervey. What a to- I've just written here, what a total stud. Total stud. Nineteen years old, dating uh, Missy Hyatt. He says, uh, Paulie, do you have a new car? Yeah, I do, says Jason. Do you have a new house? Yeah, I do. Uh, Paulie says, my dad's a lawyer. I'm good at prenuptial agreements. Uh, Are the two of you in love, Mr. TV star, he asks. Hervey, I just want to know, how did it feel to get your butt kicked by a woman? Now, I noticed here, interesting, Hervey didn't answer the question, did he? No. He didn't, he swerved that. He ducked the question about whether he's in love. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Paul Lee continues you've got a new house and a new car so if everything in your life is new then how come your girlfriend is used merchandise <laughs> fucking hell how awesome was that <laughs> good line uh, did you see like the three frat boys that were in the front row of the show yeah I saw those uh, guys Yeah, and they were completely clowning on her <laughs> during this laughing at him and uh <laughs> Um, oh, well, Hervey loses it now. I didn't yeah. come out here to get slandered by you, says Hervey. Uh, and you have to say that as a wrestling fan, our boy Jason really gets it, doesn't he? You know, there's yeah, pe- yeah, people this, who this, get this, wrestling and he got it. He's he's still playing his part here, I think. Um, as far as I'm concerned, this interview is over, says Hervey. And then Paulie attacks Jason with a phone. <laughs> Missy now runs in to clear house. <laughs> um Missy comes out to get Jason up. Uh, Tony calls uh, Paulie the master of the cheap shot. Ross mentions that Jason is 19 years old and a massive fan of WCW. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the best bits of uh, TV, wrestling TV in history. (laughs) I love that. So I found it weird that they kept calling Herbie a kid after he got a tag, but was, you know, insinuating that he was going to marry 
Missy. I mean, I mean, if he's an adult, then you, you know you can't have it both ways. Like while he's talking about his relationship with Missy, he's being presented as they're in an adult, serious relationship, and then immediately when he gets attacked, Ross is like, "Oh, they just attacked this kid." You know, I, I mean, it's like, well, I mean, he's 19 years old. Why are you gonna turn your back? I, I think it's really weird. You know, I think this angle makes Missy Hyatt seem like a cradle snatcher, like really strange kind of. Because she's obviously like a woman who's like what twenty eight something. He's nineteen. It's weird. I don't. I don't get this. Like, I mean, obviously, like they're playing on something that was happening in real life or whatever. But like in general, what's Missy doing with a nineteen year old? With with that, with that mullet as well. <laughs> I just, yeah, it, is, it is very odd. Um, but also like the dynamics. Like she's she is the cavalry. <laughs> yeah, she comes in to uh, save the day. It's in, in, in a weird way, it's kind of like her man, I guess. Yeah. It's a it's ahead of his time. This angle, it's like shades of uh, what was it, the Eddie Eddie China? Do you remember that? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, Missy Hyatt. Uh, yeah, Herbie is very hateable answering these questions. He looks <laughs> yeah. like a smug, just absolute douchebag. <laughs> Probably the biggest looking heel on this show. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd have loved it if he went to your school or something. Oh, yeah. He definitely you... should have went as an entitled, like, uh, benefactor, had him in the stable, uh, you know, using his actor's earnings to buy off these wrestlers and stuff like that. Like, it, it could have worked. He could have been a good heel, maybe. Yeah. Sure. Missed opportunity. I just like I just like the idea of Jason Hervey going to your school, Chad, and you like getting him like in the in the boys' toilets, uh, <laughs> like uh, cheap, cheap cheap shot. You'd uh, yeah. st- st- stick his head down the toilet or something. But uh, jerk. <laughs> he is a, he is a dick, isn't he? Um, and he dodged the question about the love right, angle, right, even yeah. even though she ran in, even though she ran in and saved him. That seems like uh, she's more committed to this relationship than he. Maybe Herbie isn't as dumb as we think. Yeah, I agree. The, the subtle heel, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, next match now, and uh, <laughs> one of my favourite angles. That uh, Dustin Rhodes is taking on uh, Terence Taylor, the computerised man of the 1990s. Uh, Taylor has got Alexandra York and Mr. Hughes in his corner. On the Knoxville notes, uh, they mention that Rhodes is undefeated and that Taylor is a mainstay of the York Foundation. Dustin is only 21 years old here. Uh, what do you make of this, Chad? Yeah, so uh, sadly, I watched this show on the WWE Network and they edited the York Foundation music uh, for this match. We had some generic stuff coming in. Uh, Dustin comes in and he uh, he follows Taylor in and gets a quick clothesline. Taylor regroups on the outside. Uh, they kind of do this, uh, like, punching sequence where they each kind of juke and jive and spar with each other. Uh, Dustin gets the atomic drop on Taylor, and Terry Taylor is very quickly running up the Rick Rude rankings of uh, selling an atomic drop because he does a magnificent sell job of this one here, uh, just cupping his balls and completely clowning around. Uh, Dustin goes for a shoulder block in the corner, but it's his shoulder uh, on the post and flies to the outside, which I thought was a nice-looking spot for him. 
Taylor sends him into the railing. Taylor hits a gut wrench power bomb, and I was uh, very intrigued with this. But then again, this was a very rushed match where instead of letting the heat sequence kind of work its way out, Dustin kind of gets a boot up in the corner, makes his comeback, actually hits a bionic elbow, and uh, gets a bulldog. But we have Mr. Hughes coming up to the uh, apron, uh, top of the apron, and Dustin's dealing with him. And then Ricky Morton suddenly enters the ring, and Dustin turns to face Ricky Morton and uh, has his his back to Mr. Hughes. And then Mr. Hughes gives probably the two worst punches uh, (laughs) in wrestling history. Um, He he gives the first one, and you could tell Dustin knew it looked terrible or had to look terrible because he barely grazed him. So he kind of half sells it, uh, like like has a slight reaction and is still facing Morton, who has the handshake out. And um, and then Hughes gives him another punch, which only looks slightly better. But uh, based on the storyline, Dustin had to sell off that. So he goes flying to the ground. Uh, and then Morton attacks Dustin, officially becoming a member of the York Foundation. But uh, here to save the day is Big Josh and his axe handle, which he gets a shot in on uh, Terry Taylor, but Ricky Morton is the escape. So I was disappointed in this because I was hoping for like an 8 to 10 minute very good match, and it was rushed and really just here to have the Ricky Morton turn. Yeah, I did think from what we got, we got some good stuff out of Taylor. He just had some pretty good healing to start. Uh, some good off, you know, his... Taylor looked good. He's looked decent in this little run so far since he's right. come back. Um, did you notice the very animated old woman in the front row? Yes, she was <laughs> into it. Um, I uh, I have to say, I um, yeah, uh, Big Josh with the axe handle. What sort of uh, foreign object is that? Um, but I can think we've seen worse foreign objects. The cardboard, yeah. uh, the cardboard axe. Who had that? Uh, the Night Stalker. The Night Stalker. And, yeah, that was. And uh, uh, if you if you ask me, the axe handle is a better foreign object than Triple H's sledgehammer, because um, Triple H can never actually use a sledgehammer properly, like a sledgehammer. I hate that. Sure. I hate the I hate the way that he has to use. Like nobody, if I had a sledgehammer, you'd use it like a hammer. So maybe it makes sense not to have the axe on the handle. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Triple H with the sledgehammer is a tough weapon because obviously people can't be taking these huge sledgehammer shots right to the head. So yeah, because it, it would kill someone. Right. So right. it's not. So don't use it. Then use something else. You're, you're kind of <laughs> your hands are tied. Um, um, I, you know, we've made some segues here uh, in this show and done a little more shilling than usual, but it's actually flowed through. So you mentioned Triple H. Uh, mm. Now now listen to this part. You'll love this. Uh, you know, I do a preview for each vintage vault that Scott and Justin do. I preview one match from the yeah. upcoming pay-per-view. Um, now coming up... Um, I am going to be doing a preview for Armageddon 2002. And starting with that show, I am going to review every Triple H pay-per-view match until WrestleMania 20. Holy shit. Yeah, so his dreadful 2003 run that uh, everybody kind of cites as the just the gratuitous... 
uh, him over the top, burying everybody that whole run. I will be uh, reviewing it if my sanity can last that long. Have you? Uh... If you see, are you a sadomasochist? Like, are you? Uh, <laughs> like, I know. I noticed. Uh, speaking of Triple H, I noticed that uh, Dylan has started doing uh, TNT reviews uh, recently. Yeah, Maybe, TNA. Over no, at, TNT, uh, TNA. Sorry, TNA. Yeah. Maybe you and him should get together. You know. Yeah, that's over at our uh, friends at VoicesOfWrestling dot com. So you should be uh, checking that out as well. Um. Okay. Well, I, I uh, look forward to seeing some of your Triple H. Uh, <laughs> ramblings uh but anyway uh what happens here now we get a little video package of johnny b bad right right now is it just me or is the 1991-ness of everything on into overdrive on this show yeah it seemed this like is a very 1991 looking show uh kind of the merging of the 80s becoming the 90s but mm. uh we get a recap of nikita koloff attacking sting at super brawl to lead into uh nikita koloff versus sting uh, so this is kind of Nikita's big, first big match after coming back, and uh, first kind of Sting singles match in a while too. Right. So I thought this was a a, a really big match actually, and I'm uh, interested to hear your thoughts because I thought this was really good, and I was mm. really shocked. Um, uh, Sting feels very over. Uh, he kind of fakes Nikita out where he's not going to sprint to the ring, and then he ends up doing it. But what I loved about this was, you know, when Sting started sprinting to the ring, I was like, okay, we'll get the, you know, the hot opening for the baby face. But that didn't happen at all. Nikita gains the advantage uh, and starts just waylaying on Sting. Nikita hits a big shoulder block. Uh, Nikita goes to the outside and rams Sting into the guardrail. Uh, I like Nikita yelling at the camera, take a look at him in his Russian accent. He did that a lot. Hmm. Um, and then and then we get the spot, which I, I usually hate no-sells of moves. Hmm. Uh, it's not something I like at all. But Sting comes back and gives Nikita a pile driver, and Nikita no-sells it. He stands yeah. right back up, and I loved it. I actually thought it worked well. I thought Tony was brilliant on commentary, uh, kind of covering for Sting and saying that he didn't execute it as well as he wanted to because he was a little winded and it wasn't a great looking pile driver. It's actually a moment where the botch, uh, semi botch worked in the context of the match. Um, then Nikita starts hammering away on Sting's stomach. Nikita gives him a nasty looking tombstone. Uh, but, but Sting's still able to kind of kick out. Nikita did a very cocky cover on that tombstone that cost him. Nikita hits a big slam, and Sting really knows how to work the crowd in this match. I thought he looked really super in getting some punches, which would make the crowd react, but Nikita would cut him off immediately. Uh, they they tumble to the outside again, and Sting is able to reverse Nikita into the guardrail, giving him a little faint hope. Uh, but Nikita again comes firing right back once they get on the inside. He goes for another tombstone, and Sting reverses it, an oppressive spot for Sting to reverse someone that big. Uh, Sting starts firing back now, making his comeback to a great reaction, and he goes for the Stinger Splash. And once, I mean, I bet on every single one of these false finishes for Sting in this match where I thought, okay, now he's turned the tide. And this was another one where he went for the Stinger Splash, and I bet on it, and he ends up wiping out in the corner. 
Uh, but Kolhoff misses the sickle, and Sting rolls him up for the win. Uh, kind of fluky finish, uh, a little bit of a slipped on a banana peel finish, but uh, I, I thought this was a, you know, we talk about it like a clean finish and finishes in the start of this episode. I thought this was a pretty clever finish and it being clean, but also kind of building up to rematches between these two because Nikita looked really strong. Mm. Uh, so, so this may be shocking, but I went three and a half stars on this. Wow, that is really good. That is very high. You like that match a good deal. You were even marking for. Uh, I, I thought this was one of the better Steam performances we've seen, uh, pretty much period, actually. And I thought it was a good predecessor to what he does well in the series versus Vader. Mm. Uh, now Nikita's not as good as Vader. But uh, but I thought the way Sting performed himself was working from underneath in this match is what he does well in the Vader series, and it really works for me because I believe it does build up sympathy, and Sting does look like a very over baby face in this role. I, I have the same note, actually, that this is probably the best use of Sting as an underdog, as a kind of plucky underdog fighting back. That's, that's Sting's best role, I right. think. Um, and you, yeah, it reaches its uh, its kind of a uh, zenith, I guess, in the in the Vader feud. Um, it melts a hate of this match. I know. Yeah, get, this get, this was one where the reviews are terrible, and I don't he, understand. He gives it one and a half. Oh God. Um, can't complain uh, because since Nikita was doing a clean job, they wanted the entire match to be with him on the offense, and they needed time to get the point across. Of course, Nikita was so limited that it exposed him as a worker. The finish off uh, Sting finally doing an offensive move by reversing the tombstone, but he missed a Sting a splash into the corner. Blah, blah, blah. The finish was well done, but the match was lackluster. One and a half stars. Um, so uh, he didn't like it. Petticord went three stars, though, and uh, says that it reminded him of the Magnum TA Koloff series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Keller went two, uh, so he wasn't uh, a fan either. Uh, what did I uh, have for this? The old woman has a U.S. flag now in the in the front crowd, <laughs> uh, in in the front of the row, uh, uh, which I enjoyed to see. Um, she was cheering Sting on. Um, my main note on this is that Koloff was taking a very very long time between moves. Yeah. And I think I think there's a fine line between deliberate and laborious, and uh, I think Nikita was treading that line here, and sometimes he was just taking a bit too long between his like i mean this was slower than greg valentine pace here uh on his uh you know i mean pedicore's called it methodical i don't know i think it may cross the line where he's he's almost stalling for, for stuff to do here which would talk to Meltzer's point um but it was effective as a story so uh yeah although i I have to question the wisdom of uh, pinning Nikita clean on his first match back. Yeah, that that was one I went back and forth with. I mean, this was the first high-profile singles match we've seen of him. I mean, like I said, it was clearly both the combination of the finish and what they do later on in this show was just used to build up rematches, but... uh, but it, it was a little bit like, oh, I'm a little bit surprised that Nikita uh, got pinned clean here. I mean, I, I could even see him uh, something along the lines of, uh, 
you know, he can't keep putting Sting away. Sting makes his comeback. Nikita, being overly confident before, now starts losing his frustration a bit and grabs a chair or something and DQs himself. You know, yeah. something along those lines might have worked better. Yeah, some maybe. I, I, I think, I mean, it goes to what we were talking about before, but I actually think a clean pin was the, probably the wrong thing to do in this match. Um, I mean, even Vincenio would have gone with the DQ or a countdown in this situation. Right. Um, anyway, uh, I, 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 to me, this is a hidden gem, though. I mean, I, I would like to everybody to uh, watch this that watch that listens to the show because it's it's very short, and um, I, I'm interested to hear thoughts because I can see uh, maybe somebody like Matt D being a very big fan of a match like this. Um, from yeah. a storyline logic perspective, uh, it's it's an interesting match to me. About a two and a half for me. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm less uh, keen on it than you, Chad, because I think um, well, I've always had a problem with Nikita, uh, with uh, with Nikita, as you know. Um, the, mm, yeah, about two and a half. I do think it's a very good use of Sting, though, and like the the match made sense. I just think they could have picked up the pace a little bit. Right. Uh, or done a little bit more in the time that they had. Um, now, now, Tony is in the ring uh, to welcome <laughs> the rap master, PN News, who's with uh, Pepper and Spinderella from Salt yeah. and Pepper. So they brought the DJ. Um, Spinderella cut it up one time. Uh, and uh, he says, I'm PN News here to let you know I'm here to bum rush this show. I'm from the streets, not not doing crime. That's why I crush sucker wrestlers all the time. My name is Pierre News, and I'm on the attack. Check me out later, because I'll be back. Yo, baby, yo, yo baby, baby, yo. yo. Oh, God. Um, no, I can't... First of all, I can't believe that he cut that verse in front of fucking Salt and Pepper. <laughs> has, he got no, has he got no shame at all? Like... Like they're, they're they're standing right there, and he's he's doing that. I can't believe they were old this show. I mean, they were still pretty big. I mean, yeah. when did Push It come out? It's ridiculous. I mean, they're kind of you know still over in '91. Yeah, um, this is like in their prime. I don't so, know uh, what happened? My analysis of this, Chad, PN News not only needs to work on his lyrics, which are the definition of whack. He also needs to work on his flow and delivery. Because, to put it plainly, he can't rap. Yeah, yeah. He just has no flow. Uh, he looks like he's stumbling over his lines uh, pretty oh. much with every... It, this, this is, I mean, it's I, not good. And he's gone He's gone for, like... Um, so it's a weird thing. So, they're doing... So, rap was around in 91. But PN News is, like, doing kind of 83 Run DMC. Like, yeah. he, like the flow and the style of rapper that he is... He's channeling 83, not 90, what was yeah, I mean, happening in Rapid 91. you're talking about, like, uh, this is around the time of, like, Cop Killer and stuff like yeah. that. Like, you know, PN News spouting that he's not against crime and all this. <laughs> it's, uh, he feels like a hokey bastard. I mean, he was sweating profusely during this. I don't know if you, uh, yeah, when, so when I... they closed in on him, he was really sweating. He... he I mean, he's he's not a small guy. He's yeah, big. He's, he's a big. Uh, fat, he he's in this singlet. He looks ridiculous. He, I mean, uh, he he looks like he could hang out with Big Punisher. Uh, if anybody knows it, he could <laughs> hang out with him. But uh, big pud hanging out. 
Imagine a PN News and Big Pun having, uh, a, uh, having a having a wrap off, you know. Shug Knight <laughs> officiating, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, who is this now to break up this? Uh, oh yeah, so the other thing I should say is that Salt and Pepper do not get on the mic at any point. No, they're just in the background, kind of clapping I mean, their hands. I mean, this is just a like it's almost an insulting use of them. It's like what? Come on this show, <laughs> listen to this guy rap terribly, and then act like you're loving it. It's yeah. like, come on. Um, who's, who is who is to break up the rap party now? It's Johnny B. Bad and Teddy Long with the 50s rockabilly. Um, Bad comes out and calls PN News a big old ugly bear. And then PN News says, Jesus Christ, what up, man? Why are you dissing me? I ain't no big ugly bear, boy. You want some of me? I'm right here. Um, this segment has got to be the uh, nadir of Salt and Pepper's career. Like... Even if things were going well with him elsewhere, what the hell were they doing? Did you uh, did you catch the lie that Teddy told him when he got in the ring? He, uh, yeah, what did he, What did he say? He said both of y'all can't be next, but one of y'all sure can be first. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was uh, he was uh, trying his luck trying his luck out there, wasn't he? It's like right, I've got one chance now to get in this line, and I. <laughs> <laughs> they looked a little miffed at him and saying I, that. But yeah, so so P. N. claims he's not a big holy bear, and uh, ask ask uh, Johnny B. Bad if he wants some of this, and apparently Johnny does it because him and Teddy just leave, and then uh, we get P. N. News whooping to the crowd, and I think J. R. actually said, "Yeah, he don't want none of this," or something on commentary. No, no. no the weirdest thing about this is that uh, Teddy Long says that uh, Johnny B. Bad is the original rap master. What's, I don't know, it's just so rubbish, it's so terrible. <laughs> so terrible. Yeah, this, um, is, this is straight shite. Yeah, proper, properly bad. But uh, if you're like a salt and pepper, imagine in like a salt and pepper fan, like a hardcore salt and pepper fan, seeing this. <laughs> it's quite amusing to me. Yeah, this is one of the worst use of an actual decent celebrity name that I can think of in a while. I mean, yeah, I mean, they, they gave Jason Hervey that massive segment. Jason Hervey from the Wonder Years and uh, Salt and Pepper get this. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, there's a video hype package for the Diamond Stud now. Uh, uh, yeah, here's our good god of the evening. Yeah. Good god. <laughs> 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 um, so yeah, they, they were doing a lot of these video packages. Yeah. Um, at this um, point in at this point of the show, uh, you better be happy. I like the Sting versus Nikita match because uh, otherwise this show's reaching the uh, Thanksgiving Thunder territory for me. I mean, it is just it's poor. Nothing it's, redeeming it's, so far except for that match. Um, and now uh, there's a loser leaves WCW match. Mm. Arn Anderson and Barry Windham taking on Flying Brian and El Giante. And I had my fing- both fingers crossed for who would be the loser of the fall. <laughs> yeah, don't hold your breath. Uh, <laughs> so this this was terribly rushed. I have no idea why we couldn't have just canned the PN News stuff or even the Hervey interview for that matter and done that on TV. Um, but but I thought it for a five minutes match with El Gigante as one of the combatants, this was about as good as you could have hoped for. 
uh, Anderson and Pillman start off, have a good opening stanza, uh, and then Wyndham comes in. We kind of continue that feud for a little bit between Wyndham and Pendle, Pillman. Uh, Wyndham gave him a crazy right hand that you could hear, um, um, you know, very audible, a nasty hand, right hand. They take over, start working over Pillman. Uh, they get some good punches and do a little short work, but again, the match is so rushed that uh, they can't really do a whole lot. Pillman catches Anderson and gives him a crossbody. <laughs> Gigante punches Anderson, which I thought was uh, humorous to uh, watch. And then uh, I really like this spot where Pillman does a dive off of Gigante's shoulders, uh, which got a big pop from the crowd, but uh, Barry Wyndham had to make the save. Uh, or makes the save off of that. Pillman gives a power slam on Anderson, but uh, Barry kind of trips him up off the top rope when he climbed to the top rope. And then Wyndham gives him a kick and wins the match. And so long, Brian Pillman and WCW, which uh, from a booking standpoint, I can't understand at all. Yeah. Uh... Like, like I'd go two and a half on this just quickly. Tie a bow on the match again, five minutes. I thought it was very well done, but it was so short. So um, I don't understand why, like, nothing's gone long. So yeah. the, the problem is there's too many segments. Oh, Not yeah. that, like, so just cut half of this crap. I mean, do we need to see Oz at all? Do we need to see Big Joss versus Dan Spivey? Yeah, this is an 11-match show for two hours, and the main event's a two-out-of-three-falls match. Yeah, so so stupid. Terrible booking. Um, speaking of terrible booking, I mean, Meltzer's obviously got B in his bonnet here because, uh, you know, his boy Pillman, our boy Pillman, really. Yeah, just dreadful. Why is... Why? I mean, and this is because, what, uh, Dusty's going to do the, the um, you know... Uh, you know, uh, Charlie Brown from out of town for the millionth time, yeah. basically. Right? Because Pillman's going to come back yeah. in a mask. Yeah. That's what happens. It's, uh... it's, I mean, talk about being out of ideas. But Pillman didn't need it. Just yeah. push him straight. I mean, I guess I guess Dusty really liked being the Midnight Rider because this, uh, this is a gimmick he goes back to and or, I, I or, mean, maybe uh, it worked in Florida, but we I've, it, I've, any gimmick I've ever seen of the baby face coming back in a mask, it, it doesn't seem to work off that much. I mean, the bullet, maybe I don't, I don't know. It, it's only, it's only funny. It's only good when it's obviously like Staggerly in Mid South works because yeah, it's ob, it's, it's obviously JYD, right? right? Now, what would have been really funny and hilarious is if they'd made El Giante the loser leaves town and he comes back in a mask. <laughs> That would have yeah, been hilarious. Like that would have been assassin or something yeah, like that. That would have been hilarious. That would have been good. The best possible use of him. I, Worst possible use of Pillman. I'm on board with this. Yes, I'm <laughs> definitely on board with this. He should have dropped the match, came back in a hood. <laughs> that would have been absolutely glorious. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, let's let's move on then. Um, poor, poor booking. Did you like the match? I mean, I thought the match was pretty uh, as quick as it was. But. Well, it was so. I mean, they, they, like Melter said, they were moving into the finish as it was starting. Sure. Which is, I mean, yeah, it was like for what we got, it was good. But what, I mean, what do you expect? It's got Pillman on and Barry Windham there. Right. It's, it's never going to be terrible, right? But sure. like, give it ten minutes. Yeah, yeah, Please. I can't understand why this was so rushed. Um, 
Well, anyway, uh, next match is uh, Steiner Brothers taking on Hase and Chono. Uh, Hase, a former Olympian, Chono trained by Luce Thares. Uh, this is for the uh, IWGP tag titles. Uh, it's the second title of defense for the Steiners after they took a day trip to Osaka. Uh, Chono has replaced Sasaki as Hase's partner because he's been on a roll. Um, Ross mentions that uh, Hase is definitely like the leader of this team. Right. I wonder if anyone told Chono though. <laughs> <laughs> Hase was going to be a college professor working on his PhD before he decided to become a pro wrestler. Um, he was also in the 1984 Olympics, so what a guy. He's both uh, both an athlete and uh, he's got brain on him too. Uh, he's wearing the yellow. Chono's wearing like the traditional Japanese uh, kind of karate robes. Um, so another Steiner's match, Chad. Yeah. So uh, so real quick before I get to this match, we did before this this annoyed me, so I made a note of that. We had a kind of a Great American Bash Control Center with Paul E. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. There was that, yeah. Where they basically showed highlights of last year's pay-per-view. Now, I don't know how that promotes this year's, but uh, whatever. That was just a quick note that I thought that was some poor promotion on their part. Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, now, this match, uh, Hase, Hase is a guy that I really enjoy. Uh, as I've been watching my 1990s stuff, he's a guy that's kind of been raised in my eyes, very consistent. I actually had a conversation with Charles uh, Loss uh, a couple of days ago about this, and we, we both kind of agreed that he, you know, Chono and Mudo could reach the heights, but they were a little inconsistent. And Hase, especially in 1991, had a really great year. Uh, there's a match with him versus Liger from May, which mm. is one of my favorite matches of the year, actually. And uh, I, I was excited to see him here because uh, this this run for Chono, this is right before he goes into overdrive and has a great run culminating in the uh, G1 Climax. Uh, so Hase so and Scott start off. Hase looks great. He hits an integrated to the outside. Uh, Scott hits a hot shot, and they have a good pin and sequence with both their power kind of being displayed where they'd go back and forth. Hossi hit, again, another just nasty kick that you could hear audibly uh, that got some good oohs and ahs from the crowd. Tony actually even mentions that on commentary. Uh, they uh, Steiner hits a fireman carry takedown, and in comes Rick and Chono. So I, I really like that opening stanza between Hase and Scott. Thought Scott looked better than he had in a while. Um, mm. Now, Tony, again, I, I really thought Tony on commentary was good on this show, doing some great points. And here he talks about the time difference for the Japanese team mm. and how that might affect them. Uh, so Chono and Rick come in, and immediately Chono hits a big kick from the ropes, uh, and Rick's headgear gets broken from the impact, which I loved. I thought that was just like <laughs> really showed the intensity of this. Uh, Chono has some really nasty kicks here. Rick fires back with some clothesline. But but Chad, did you uh, did you secretly like it because you want Rick to actually get hurt? <laughs> I don't want him to get hurt. I, mean, I thought like the visual <laughs> of him with that broken headgear was really nice. Like showed him mm-hmm. uh, kind of embattled. Uh, Scott tags in, lifts him up, and Rick hits an elbow from the top. That was nice. With to a hot crowd reaction, we get a German suplex from Rick. Uh, Hase comes back in and gets a fire and carry slam. Chono does a flying shoulder block from the top rope and a fallaway slam of his own. 
Hossi then did a, an interesting move where he came off the top with a quick knee and quickly rolled to the outside. So a little little cheating uh, from the Japanese team there, kind of doubling up. Chono locks in his STF uh, while Scott and Hase are having a battle on the outside. Scott is able to hit a suplex on the outside, and then we get our, our big botch of the night as he botches the dive off the top rope badly and uh, kind of has to recover quickly and does a double axe handle. A uh, double clothesline puts us kind of all square for the match, and uh, they do the big tag in where Scott and Hase are now the legal men. Scott gives a nasty clothesline to him and a tilt-a-whirl slam and a tiger driver. He follows up, uh, and then he hits a belly-to-belly suplex from the second rope, so that was a very impressive sequence uh, for, for Scott there. Mm. And, uh, and then that kind of leads us right to the finish where um, where uh, he's able to get the Frankensteiner and pick up the victory. So this was a short match, too. I don't think. I'm almost positive this didn't go 10 minutes. Eight, it's about eight minutes. Eight minutes, yeah. For what they packed in, I thought it was uh, pretty, pretty great, actually. Uh, I went in between like three and a four, three and a half. Um, mm. I, I really like this one. Well, Melter went all out four stars on this, uh, which seems a bit much. I, f- I feel, um, yeah, he he really. I mean, but he's a mark for both the Steiners and anyone who's Let Japanese. Let's see what Keller gave this uh, three and a four, so he's kind of right there where I'm at. Yeah, uh, Petticord went three and a half, um, as did I. Um, now I do like. I think this is a good match. But I think it's lacking the greatness of recent Steiner matches uh, that we've seen. Um, I did think there was an amazing segment in the middle of this match, though. Uh, and this is the interaction between Scott Steiner and Hasse. There's a section where Scott gives like Hasse about three or four massive bombs in a row. And then uh, Hasse comes back with a full Nelson suplex. Uh, now, possibly you could say that Hasse should have been a bit more out of it after taking all those bombs. Um for him to just come back with a suplex like that mm-hmm. um, but he does then get pinned like moments later by the Frankensteiner um, so I mean that did have a little bit of a, what you would call a too much go-go-go-ness I guess right. where, where guys are taking like moves that should be knocking them out and they're just acting like nothing has happened and I think Hasse was a little bit guilty of that in this match but um, for 8 minutes lots of action so you can't really complain too much. Uh, about three and a half, I think. Um, but yeah, I think um, I'd like to see these guys go longer and a bit slower, weirdly. Uh, maybe like 15 minutes and just a little bit like... Um, a little bit where maybe one team is working the other one over. And yeah, if we you could actually have feel... a, uh, if we could have had a starting sequence with Rick and Hase wrestling, I think that'd have been really good. Yeah, but I, I kind of feel like the, I kind of feel like the bombs in this match didn't have the impact that they should have. Mm. Um, yes, okay. Um, so anyway, it's uh, the hardliners uh, interrupt this. Don't they? Yeah. They come, yeah. They come out wearing uh, flat caps and jeans, and that is uh, the hardliners of Dick Murdoch and Dick Slater, um, looking like they kind of work in a kind of 1930s New York construction site or something like that. That's how they're dressed. Um, 
Slater hits a neck breaker, and Scott. Uh, I, I think Scott Steiner legitimately gets injured at some point during this match. Yeah, I think this is the match where he actually tears his bicep, uh, so he's out of action for a while. Uh, kind of unfortunate because I mean, I, whether I've been up or down on the matches, I have thought they've all been pretty good, uh, and this has been kind of a run as a tag for them. Like I said, Scott to me has been the worst of the uh, duo. Uh, so far in 91 but uh, mm-hmm. but uh, yes I'd like to have seen them continue as a team certainly. Here's a quick question uh, Pedicord says that this match would have been better with Sasaki in it uh, do you agree with that? No I, I, I actually thought uh, Hase was really good in this match I thought he was uh, I, I was a big fan of Hase so. but I, I, I'm guessing he means uh, Sasaki and Vachono. Oh for Chono um, yeah I, I would take Chono as well over that because Chono's kicks were nasty I mean I mean to me for some reason maybe it's just the sequence of it but like when Scott did his finishing sequence with the belly culminating that belly to belly from the second rope Mm. that to me was uh, more impactful than almost any of the other kind of Steiner spot fest moves I I really kind of got behind that one okay um so yeah, I'm I, I I'm weirdly less wild on that one than the others, um, but uh, I do think Hase is somebody I'd like to see more of. He yeah. looked cool. He looked yeah, cool. He has in this a, match. I mean, he has a junior junior stuff in the '80s, and then more heavyweight stuff in the '90s, and then it actually ended up going to all Japan and has a a good match with a really good match with Kabashi in 97 has a match at the dome with Akiyama in 98 that I enjoy a good deal and then has a great match versus Kawada at the dome in 99 so a really kind of some signature matches there does he ever have a match with uh, Sato I just imagine they'd have a great match if they ever Uh, face each other yeah I can't recall right off hand so uh, he has some good matches with Hashimoto so he seems like a, almost like a, in a weird way, like uh, with the Olympic connection, like a early Kurt Angle or something, like right, a like right. a because uh, yeah, like these guys with amateur backgrounds who do bombs and things. Yeah. But I, I guess Hasse is a bit more lightweight than uh, than Angle or Rick Steiner or any of these guys, right? Yeah, I can see the comparison though, uh, between him and Angle. All right, so the Diamond Stud now taking on Tommy Rich. Not a good night for the Rich family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, DDP. Where's the girl who applied for the job of being the studette? Are you ready to peel the real deal, baby? <laughs> good God. Yes. She pulls it off. <laughs> good God. So I guess and, and I guess uh, DDP is impressed with uh, Stud's physique. Because as soon as yeah, I mean immediately, good God! As soon as and, she pulls it off, and then she doesn't get the uh, she doesn't get the job. Yeah, he's like, what do you end up saying something along the lines of "You were good, but hit the bricks" or whatever? Oh God, can you imagine like the seat like uh, so Diamond Stud like takes a girl back and like uh, what, what does it does DDP hang around just commentating? Good God, like. <laughs> <laughs> When he when he's hitting the high spots, good God, <laughs> ridiculous, uh, stupid. I just <laughs> they should just cut the whole mid card of WCW this time. This it's just rubbish. Um, what I loved about this match, I and this is another like I think this match possibly went less than the Oz match, didn't it? 
Uh, yeah, it was either right around the time of it, so it was quick. Pure squash. I mean, poor yeah, old Tommy yeah, Rich. Tommy yeah. Rich has fell on hard times here. I, the Diamond Stud put hard times on Tommy Rich. Um, we're told doing this match, the hard line has been fined $5,000 for accosting the official oh, in the geez. attack. Five, that's a lot of money. Um, and, uh... Uh, what what I loved about this match was just how dead the crowd were. I mean, I, the crowd are so dead for everything Diamond Dallas Page does. Yeah. And I just love that. He's trying so hard, and they just don't give a shit. <laughs> they couldn't give less of a shit. Yeah. And uh, that's quite amusing to watch. Yeah, he's not making it uh, in this role. Uh, I mean, really, the only highlight of this match, besides how much of a jobber Rich looks like, is Stud hits the Rager Edge, which mm. they call the Diamond Death Drop. Uh, for the win, but yeah. How, how do you think he's looked here? Uh, in I, mean, I mean, it's tough to see because we hadn't gotten really a signature match, and actually, I haven't watched any of his uh, competitive stuff to make the '91 footage of Stall. So I'd be interested to see if uh, maybe we can find like an eight to ten minute TV match of him versus a decent opponent. If that's on YouTube, we might can throw that into our TV stuff that we watch at the end of the year. I, I'm interested. Uh, it, uh, Meltzer calls the um, the razor's edge here an Argentinian backbreaker dropped into a powerbomb type move. Interesting. Yeah. What's an, Argen- uh, what's an Argentinian backbreaker? What an Argentinian backbreaker is. <laughs> that's that's from the Jim Ross book of moves. <laughs> the Japanese arm drag. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, on to another winning winning segment now because uh, Jim Ross is with the winner of the Sting lookalike contest. Who's a little boy who loves the Stinger? Uh, <laughs> um, do you think this kid looked a bit like Sting? Well, he, he only had his face painted like Sting. But do you know who this kid was? Oh no! You see, I've I've got a uh, I've got here. I did a search to see who that kid was because I wouldn't be surprised if he was connected to the business in some yes. way. That's, now, who is he? So, so the kid is apparently Kevin Sullivan's son. Uh, right, Ben. Uh, so so yeah so basically this is to continue the Nikita Sting feud where the kid looks like Sting supposedly but not really uh, Sting comes out to glad hand him and then Nikita attacks him with a chain and hits him in the guardrail uh, now Ben's mom <laughs> in quotation marks jumps the guardrail to protect Ben uh, and Doug Dillinger escorts poor Nikita away so this just continued their feud um, yeah, I know. I did think this kid did a very good job of legitimately marking out for Sting. Yeah, his, yeah. his mouth, his mouth was wide open. He couldn't believe it. It seemed like the best moment in his life, you know. Yeah, better actor than his dad. Yeah. Um, and then uh, wait, one little weird thing, uh, you know, when Nikita Koloff is sneaking in with the chain and attacking uh, Stinger, now he, he's not doing a snake gimmick, but I thought that he looked he looked snakier and better than Randy Orton. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. though he's not doing that gimmick, like he seemed really sneaky. Yeah, off. that camera angle they did was really good, where it's kind of on the ground, looking up at him sneaking in, uh, coming in with the chain, and uh, yeah, it was well done. Now I uh, I loved it when Nikita went after the kid. I've just written in my notes. Oh come on, Nikita, nail that little shit. <laughs> and then the boy's mother jumps in to protect him. Uh, Doug Gillinger gets involved. I thought this was really funny. Um, but it did, like, from that moment, I was like, oh, it's obvious. This is a not a genuine kid. 
that it was like a you know an RVD DBRC sort of deal. Um, uh, yeah. Um, okay. So uh, yes. So little Ben Sullivan. Did he ever do anything with his? Not uh, that I know of. No. He, n- he never became a wrestler. No. Um. So yeah, much better work than anything Kevin Sullivan's done on the past five shows, really. <laughs> uh, um. Lex Luger taking on the Great Muta now. Uh, and Bill Kazmaier, the world's strongest man, is in the audience yeah. in a Lex Luger t-shirt. Now, I thought the world's strongest man was Jeff Capes. Um, have you heard of Jeff Capes, uh, Chad? No, actually, I haven't. Uh, now, I looked this up, and uh, apparently Capes and uh, Kazmaier were actually feuding, sort of, in the world's strongest man uh, TV kind of tournament thing that they used to do. So, uh, yeah, like uh, when I was growing up, Jeff Capes was the strong man everyone used to talk about. Um, but clearly, Bill Kazmaier was the big uh, was the big deal in that uh, in the states. Um, and I did look up that Kazmaier did basically break any of like Capes couldn't get close to Kazmaier in the end. Yeah, and I know I know Kazmaier. I mean, he did legitimately win the world's strongest man contest a couple of years. So yeah, he like lifted a truck or something. <laughs> um, um, so uh, yes. The winner of this match will face Ric Flair at the Great American Bash. Right. Um, and, uh, well, intriguing matchup on paper. Yeah, I was very looking forward to this and was, uh, let's just needless to say, very let down. Uh, Muda missed before the match. Basic wrestling to start, which I quite didn't understand because they know they're pressed for time. So uh, this was way too deliberate for the amount of time they had. Luger misses an elbow. Muda kind of works him over a little bit. Hits a backdrop. Luger fires back with a huge military slam. But uh, Muda actually catches Luger with a spinning karate kick right to the face. Muda wipes out on the handspring elbow and goes tumbling to the outside in a good-looking spot. Uh, but that led right to the finish where Muda tries to miss Lex. Luger is able to show smartness for once in his life and block it. And uh, he gets the pin in just around five minutes. Very disappointed. Extremely yeah. disappointed in no, the length of this match. I didn't notice this, but Meltzer says that uh, at one point it was really obvious that camera, one of the photographers ran to him on camera and handed him his miss gimmick. I didn't see that. Oh, I didn't see that either. Hmm. No. Um, he, he says that um, he gives a dud and says it's a waste of a great talent and it was so quick. Luger didn't pick up any momentum from scoring a big win. Going yeah, into the I pick agree review. with that. Keller uh, uh, gave it a star and a fourth. So I mean, I'm like at a star and a half probably I, myself. I will say Muta's bump was was amazing. Yeah, that was nasty. Um, Pedicord wonders uh, that um, you know what like was it the bump that cut the match short? Like, did Muta actually get injured there? Um, I, I actually just think it's obviously time. And yeah, I yeah, they're just pressed on time because, I mean, we see they had this block, this two-and-a-half-hour block, so they really had to boogie now. They just they overbooked this show tremendously. And yeah, I mean, it looks worse after this. Luger looked great, but come on, you know, just cut the Oz shit. Yeah. Cut the Oz shit, give this 15 minutes. Cut all of the, any moment the Diamond Dallas Page is on TV, cut, you know... We could have just started off with Jason Hervey uh, and gone straight in. Like, we didn't need any of the first three matches, really. Like, go from Jason Hervey straight into um, Dustin Rhodes versus uh, Terry Taylor, Nikita Sting, 
uh, any PN news nonsense, the Steiner match, and this. That would, that would have been a very solid opening, like, opening to the show. Uh, anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy to think that less than three years earlier, we were at Clash of the Champions 4, where, you know, the Fantastics and Eddie Gilbert and Ron Simmons are fighting for 20, 25 minutes, yeah. and... Steve Williams is fighting the Italian Stallion for 15 minutes. I mean, we're a long way away from that. I tell you what, I'd be firing Dusty right now if I was if I was there, because I mean, he's just like made everything worse, even. Right. Um, anyway, there's a video package for stunning Steve Austin now, uh, who gets his first appearance on uh, where the big boys we're, play. Yeah, real quickly, let's uh, we got to talk about the Bruise Cruise. <laughs> they do a oh yeah, yeah, that. yeah, oh yeah. Oh god, uh, right. Which, which I always wanted to go on as a kid. I thought it was a cool concept. Uh, <laughs> in like the ninety-seven, ninety-eight, we get a great, uh, great. And this was what you mentioned earlier with Flair. He does a short snippet here where he's yeah. like, "Have the time of the life on the Bruise Cruise." Woo! And then that's it. Now, what was the brute like? Basically, was this a wrestling ship? Yeah, basically a cruise with uh, wrestlers on the ship. So. Can you imagine going on the Bruce Cruise with <laughs> with Flair there? <laughs> wow, that would have been amazing. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. you could you could have like the you know, like the Horseman deck, or like you could go like probably like down in the bowels where uh, there'd be like I don't know guys doing hardcore drugs probably. Yeah, I'm uh, actually a little surprised WWE doesn't do that now. The only one I remember is from like 97, 98 WCW time where it was like Disco Inferno and Hacksaw Duggan were the, were the main guys in the pictures. Uh, so not too exciting there. Do you know what? If I could get in that Quantum Leap machine and go back to bloody uh, 91 Bruise Cruise and see what the hell was going on there... <laughs> Do you think like the York Foundation hung out together? Yeah, you yeah. know, <laughs> you know, you, you try to sit down to play cards with uh, Terry Taylor and uh, Ricky Morton, but Mister Hughes gives you a dirty look and you have to move away. You know. <laughs> um, okay. Anyway, um, do you think Jason Hervey was on the Bruce Cruise? <laughs> That'd be good, him and Missy. Um, so, a stunning Steve Austin taking on Joey Mags. Uh, who is Lady Blossom? So uh, Lady Blossom, Victoria, kind of, kind of stunning Steve's valet. Uh, I guess by this time they were dating. I'm pretty mm. sure uh, in real life. But uh, yeah, so this is our first look at stunning Steve. Um, you know, it's, it's more interesting in retrospect knowing what he became to watch him now. And this this well, this matches literally nothing. Did he ever go on to do anything in wrestling? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll track his career. I've, I've got him earmarked that he may uh, potentially be a name to look out for. Um, but, yeah. but, I mean, up to this point, he'd really had the Chris Adams feud and not much else. Um, that's kind of where he's at. 25 seconds long. Yeah, this, 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 why this had to be on this show, I'll never know. Right. I mean, so. yeah, maybe, maybe give Austin a match against, I don't know. Maybe uh, like he, well, he was a heel, wasn't he? Yeah, well, maybe he, Dustin Rhodes or something. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what they could have done. I, I would have just canned the whole match, but uh, yeah. So this yeah. Was, this was worthless, especially this late in the show. He doesn't need to be on the Clash. Just give him a give him a uh, give him a ten minute main event on a TV show or something right. around this time. Anyway, um, so 
Uh, what else happens now? Oh yes, we get a video package for Black Blood. I can't believe they're actually doing that gimmick. God. I can't like as if as if we needed any more shit yeah. in the promotion. They're doing Black Blood on top of Oz and Diamond Stud and you know all the rest of it. Um, I don't know, but there's something about this show that seems uh, sanitized and lacking in excitement at the moment. It's like the whole promotion just seems to be. I mean, I, I said it last uh, week. We, weird. Like this, like nothing's happening really. But as I say that, Richard Morton comes out in a suit, um, and he says it's the greatest day of his life uh, because he's joining the York Foundation. Um, and then Robert Gibson comes out saying <laughs> you never return my phone call we're four times tag team champions Morton then stops Mr. Hughes and Terry Taylor attacking saying this is not in the contract this is not in the contract and then he turns round and he says you know Robert I've been waiting ten years to do this and he punches Gibson in the face <laughs> yes I marked he does a pile driver yes <laughs> Dustin runs in to clear the house and I absolutely love this because I hate Robert Gibson, as everybody knows. <laughs> yeah, so this is a good sequence. I mean, again, though, I would say this could have been done on TV the next week. I mean, we yeah. we saw Morton turn, so just uh, in the match. So uh, just just wait for TV. Uh, felt felt very tacked on at this point of the show. I mean, I mean, we literally had 16, 17 segments on this show. It's just, it's just way too much overkill where nothing can resonate. They could have made more of that. I mean, it was a big like think yeah, about I mean, how long they, they, they would... went straight to a break after the attack, and then we come back immediately to Bobby's entrance. So. Yeah, the weirdest thing about the show is that nothing was talked about by the commentators afterwards either. Right. So like, we don't hear about Jason Hervey again. We don't hear about this again. Like, it's like none of the stuff seems to last outside of its own segment. Right. Which um, is strange. Um, okay. So, we're moving into the. Uh, but it was a great little personal mark out moment to see. Uh, I've been waiting 10 years to do this. Bang. Take that, you goofy eyed knob. <laughs> <laughs> You've been riding my coattails. I'd love it if he'd cut a full on promo, you know. You've been riding my coattails for too long. Robert Gibson, it's about time you did some work. Uh, that could have been a great feud, you know. Talk yeah, about wasted. A lot longer feud too, for sure. Yeah, w- wasted opportunities. Um, well, I guess we'll talk about that soon when that that when that match happens. Uh, anyway, it's beautiful Bobby Eaton uh, in it, you know, probably in one of the biggest matches of his career against Ric Flair. I mean, they're really pushing Eaton here, ranked four. Uh, probably his biggest moment as a single star brings a tear to my eye and Jim Ross says on commentary I'm not embarrassed to say that I'm a wrestling fan which I think is code for fuck yes this is a hardcore fans dream yes. match yeah. and this is just for you guys you know and it's it's good that Ross occasionally did those, does that little nod to the 100,000 people who are going to buy the pay-per-view show you know um, remember this is a two out of three falls um, and before we get to this um there is one little moment that I picked out in the early moment of this match where, um, you know the old woman that I've uh, <laughs> I've been talking about she's clapping Flair just pauses a moment and looks at her and then he, consider, he considers 
saying something and then he thinks better of it and goes back to the man. <laughs> it was just a great moment where this old woman who's been like front and centre has a little moment where she's recognised by Ric Flair. It's kind of like, I enjoyed it. Um, so anyway, uh, quite a bit to say for this match, so I'll let you go first, Jan. Yeah, so, so some backstory on this match is... Like we talked about uh, in the Kellers and in the Meltzers, the both both competitors were very excited to have this match. They thought they were going to go very long. Uh, Eaton trained a lot for this match and was really kind of revving himself up. Even even by this point, I mean it's weird that at Super Brawl we just saw him come to get the big singles win, beating Anderson. He's the TV champion now, and already by this clash he'd lost the uh, TV title to uh, Steve Austin. They don't acknowledge it here because it hadn't aired yet, but it, mm-hmm. the taping had already occurred. So I don't know why they soured on Eaton that quick. I mean he he, he had a two week reign essentially as the TV champion. Uh. So, so I don't, I don't quite know what happened, but, but this, this match is by far the victim of the uh, overkill of the rest of the show, because I think we could have had a 30-minute spectacular match, and instead we get a 16, 17-minute, two out of three fall match that's, that's good, but just is, is rushed, and it's very unfortunate because the first fall of this match to me is just. Uh, some really good stuff with the key lock. Uh, Eaton does this mm-hmm. really neat key lock submission for Flair rolling around, and they're they're really wrestling and doing great. And Eaton does a great babyface comeback and ends up winning the first fall with the Alabama Jam. Really has momentum going. The crowd is going, uh, and even even the second fall is is short, but I thought effective and. Eaton really has Flair on the ropes, and Flair kind of a move of desperation sends Eaton off the top rope to the outside where he injures his knee and gets counted out. Um, so I'd have liked to see maybe a few more minutes in that fall, but to me the third fall is the, the biggest detriment to the match where uh, you know Eaton is in pain with the leg and he's able to fire back a little bit, but I really would have liked to seen Flair just crank on the leg for about five to ten minutes work it over um given eaton his comeback that he has here and then done the same finish they did which i thought was great and put over the figure four better than mm-hmm. it has in a while where flair has the figure four in clinched uh he is able to use the ropes for leverage but he ends up getting a pinfall off the uh, figure four for the victory because Eaton's uh, leg is in so much pain so so really this is one of the more missed opportunity matches I think in history and there's really no excuse why they didn't give these guys a signature spot uh, more time on a class show like this yeah and once again I'm, looking, I'm thinking of DDP's stupid face and all, and yeah, all the rest yeah. of the shit yeah that was given time, you know. Um, however, uh, I will say the first fall is like, I mean, it really, there's some really good stuff in this match. Um, there was a little thing Tony Schiavone said on commentary I've never seen Ric Flair give up or submit. And I was about to write my notes that simply isn't true because of the double chicken wing at Clash right, 6. Right. But then I remembered that Tony wasn't there because uh, Tony was in WF in uh, 89. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but maybe Tony never went back and watched uh, Steamer Flare. Um, 
But that is pretty much the only time I've ever seen Flair submit myself, I think. Does it? Do I, when else does he submit? Yeah, I can't think of... Uh... Maybe later. Maybe right, right. Old, we'll old... have to try that. Yeah. Maybe Old Man Flair days. You know, I'm talking like WE. Like, does he quit in any of those uh, kind of WrestleMania kind of trash matches? Mm, Maybe. Not positive, yeah. Um, anyway... F- what I liked was that Flair busted out the butterfly suplex, which showed that he was treating this match with uh, some respect. You know? <laughs> we, we, we've seen him, we've seen him reserve that move only for special occasions, and he was treating this like some special occasion, which I think was nice. And then uh, when Eaton hit the Alabama Jam and gets the three count, I mean, what a beautiful moment in pro wrestling. Uh, Eaton puts his head in his hands and he's emotional, and they play the Midnight's theme on the replay. Uh, they probably didn't do that on the network no, version, but yeah, they, no, they, they, they did in the version I watched. Uh, that was awesome. Um, then uh, Ross and Shivani shill the plane crash again. Um, and, you know, you've got to love the assortment of backbreakers and neckbreakers that Bobby uses here he, to focus the offense on the neck, kind of upper back area. Um, we get a big bump to the outside uh, where he injures his leg on the floor for this second fall. And... Um, yeah, I mean the second fall was nothing, right? Um, and then the third fall is is rushed, as you said. Flair rolls him in. Eaton can barely st- stand, and really this was set up for an extended Flair kind of decimating the knee action here, but we don't really get it. Eaton hits the super flex, uh, the superplex, and um, he, then they put the figure four over, like you said. Um, I have to say though, Ross was tremendous on commentary here. Like he was, lo- he really lost his shit for that two count uh, when Eaton rolled Flair up, mm-hmm. um, and then he really got over the figure four. He was like, I don't know. This is like when Ross earns his money in matches like this. Uh, I actually thought it was a great match. Uh, everybody does talk about the lack of time, um, and th- but I think that's a case of backstage stuff kind of affecting people's ratings a bit. Like we know that it was planned to go, you know, all the stuff that. So people know this, right? So it, they kind of let it affect their their rating of, of what we see. Um, I think even despite all of that, they still told an excellent story. Uh, all right, it was rushed a little bit, and the second four was nothing. But they still got the job done in establishing Eaton as somebody who surprisingly pushed the champ close. Um, so I gave it four stars. Oh, it's four yeah, stars for yeah. me. Uh, Meltzer gave three and a half. That's what Keller gave. Uh, yeah, I'm probably like three and a fourth, uh, three and a half. I, I I think eight minutes to the third fall, probably two more minutes uh, to the second fall, and probably uh, more five minutes of opening wrestling filling out process to the first fall, and you you turn a 15, 16 minute match and uh, double it essentially, and I I think you'd have had probably a match of the year contender for sure. But my feeling is that it's a four-star match that could have been a five-star match. Yeah, yeah. That's my, that's my, that's my view. I mean, so. uh, well, yeah, I mean, I'm in the camp, too, that for what we got, three and a fourth was good. Uh, I mean, that's a good match, but I, I couldn't get over the feeling that the third fall felt very rushed. Uh, so. Well, hmm. I, I also think that if the match ended after, I mean, obviously, if the match ended after the first four, we would have had a new world champion, and it puts a totally different color on the match, but... If it had been just a ten-minute match, and that's all we get, yeah, I think people would. I think people would go higher than, than, like three and a quarter. I think people would go higher on this match in general. 
um, and it's the the rushed feeling of that second four. Mm-hmm. But you know, he does really hurt his. I, they they did it. They, they're smart with that second four because he really looks like he's hurt his leg, and Eaton's great at selling, as we know. And then Flair's like such a dick. He's like, right, count him again. Count like counting for the third four as well. Right. And then he goes after it. So it it it. The, even though they're making do, they make the they kind of do the best they could with it. If that makes sense. Um, in the time they've got, like, what else could they have done? It, it, it's kind of smart for what they've for the situation they're in as well. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I can get along with that. But yeah, it, ideally you want that last fall to be at least ten minutes. You know, at least ten minutes for that last fall. Even if you write the second fall off, it's still like what was it? Three minutes after that? Yeah, it was. It was quick. It was very yeah. quick. So, but even despite that, I I uh, I really enjoy what we do get. Um, so, um, and and it saves this show from being a complete shower of shit, which it may well still be. Uh, overall thoughts on Clash of the Champions fifteen. So another kind of weird card with a bunch of crap that I hated, uh, but it did have three good matches mixed in there. So uh, can't can't necessarily say it was terrible, but uh, what, what certainly not good. To me, the three good matches are Sting, Nikita, the uh, Steiners tags, and the main event. Yeah, I can go along with that. They're, they're all. I mean, they're all good matches. Yeah. Um, they're all yeah. But yes. felt, I mean, all I'd say except for Sting and Nikita felt rushed. I mean, the other two could have certainly used more time. So it's a rush show overall. It's a very lackadaisically scattered brain feeling show, book show. It, there is also a five star segment here as well, which is the Jason Hervey material. Uh, that has to be watched as well, um, especially if you if you if you've been following this show from the or if you haven't seen it and. Uh, you remember Jason of old. Um, it's like he's coming out party almost, because he's been uh, he's been on uh, WCW uh, Crockett TV before, hasn't he? Many times. Yeah, sure. He's but he, but he's he, he's usually sitting in the crowd. But uh, this was actually like an angle for him, which is cool. Um, yeah, match of the night. Okay, so uh, probably a big upset for me. I'm picking Sting and Nikita. That is a big upset. Um, I'm picking the main event. Yeah. I think it was uh, Bob Eaton, Ric Flair. Um, MVP? Uh, so, uh, in my MVP, uh, I think Sting's a actual a contender for MVP here. Uh, but I'm going to go with Bobby Eaton. Um, you could tell he put a lot into that match. And uh, I agree that the way he sold the leg was good. The way he reacted when he won the first fall was excellent. And... Um, Really unfortunate. I mean, he has some signature matches kind of at the end, but this was sort of like his one and only shot. It felt like as a singles main event star uh, throughout mm-hmm. his career, and this this is it. So, yeah, I have to go with Eaton as well. Although there are there are other contenders like Bob Sullivan. <laughs> ben, what was that ben, his name? Ben Ben Ben, yeah, ben. ben Sullivan. Ben Sullivan. Um, Hervey uh, was a contender. Um, <laughs> I like you know, especially if he was uh, playing the subtle heel like we discussed. Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone were both great on commentary doing the show. Uh, Ricky Morton, for what it's worth, was good in his heel turn. Um, 
you know so like weirdly quite a lot of good performances given that the show overall doesn't feel that good but uh, Eton yeah I, I love the fact that I loved him putting his head in his hands showing like showing that this is a massive moment for him I thought it was really good um, uh, Billy Graham uh, so my Billy Graham was Big Josh I, I went through that whole rant but uh, uh, dreadful just dumb dumb baby face move hate hate him in the ring not a fan at all so what's what's happened to him he's, I thought he was meant to be a decent worker yeah like I've said before I, I mean Bourne really is able to mold these characters that are obscure like I mean the stuff he does with Doink even after this is great and the born again character in ECW is at least interesting and there's just something about the way he portrayed Big Josh as like a lumber, lumbering idiot that only punched and kicked and uh, acted like a hillbilly that I just, I just can't stand I don't know it just I, I mean I know he's trying to play a character but I don't get it at all alright uh, my uh, Billy Graham award winner almost an embarrassment of riches uh, I'm tempted to give it to DDP you know just for being annoying uh, but I'm gonna say PN News. Oh, yo baby, yo baby, yo! Awful, just absolutely atrocious. <laughs> uh, yeah, terrible. One of the worst rappers of all time. <laughs> so, <laughs> where do we go from here, Chad? What's the next show? Uh, so our next show is probably one of the more infamous shows we'll do: Great American Bash 1991. Uh, typically seen as one of the worst pay-per-views of all time, and we'll have a special guest, Good Helmet Will, will be joining us on that. Uh, we've had wow. him booked for over a year in real time for this show, so uh, he's looking he's, forward to it. He's been waiting. He's yeah. been waiting, and uh, bless him, he actually sent us the disc, do you remember? Yeah. Make sure we all have the right version of the show. So, yeah, I look forward to talking to, to Will. That will be his debut on Where the Big Boys Play. And uh, now I'm off to watch Netherlands versus Mexico. It's going to be fun. So until next time. All right. Sounds good, Parv. See ya. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.